happy 44th show to you. Happy 44th show to you. Happy 44th show, Mr. Ansberg. Happy 44th show to you. Hi, Marky. Hey, Mom. What's happening? Not much. Just making chicken soup. Maybe make Daddy feel better. What's the matter with Dad? Well, you know, his lungs have been bothering him. I didn't know that was happening recently. Oh, yeah. And then they added a lot more meds yesterday. So I had this chicken for a couple of days, and I said, I'm going to go play cards today. So then... He came back, and I thought, geez, I have plenty of time. So, like, what do you do with the chicken? What to do, what to do? So I thought, well, if he's not feeling up to par, chicken soup is always good. Jewish medicine, right? Jewish penicillin. Right. Well, it's not helping my shoulder. What's the matter with your shoulder? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? It hurts. Okay. And then it goes down, and I get electric shocks in it. I don't know if that's from my face, whatever. Did you get that CBD cream? Yeah. Did you put it on your shoulder? Sometimes. How about now when it hurts and you know about it and you have the cream? I could do that. Well, I'm just I'll saying, I just had my first cup of coffee and a couple, well, no, I guess I tried to have it last weekend and it didn't do well by me. And so Right, I remember you saying that. I felt I wanted a cup of coffee this morning and so I went and got one and uh, so far so good. Oh, good. What's dad doing? Well, he was helping me. He cut up the celery. He cut up the celery for the soup? And the onion for the soup. Did he cry when he cut up the onions? I don't think he did cry. By the way, you're opening uh, show number 44. Do you know who was the 44th president of the United States of America? Uh, It's not Kennedy. 44th president of the United States of America, mother. 44. Who do you think that is? The most significant shift in American politics in the history of American politics. Come on, who would have been the most significant? You're not talking about Lincoln. No, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not taking anything away from old Abe. He totally threw down and did some things for the people. No, 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 I But that's interesting you say Lincoln because you're on the right track. If it wasn't for Abraham Lincoln, this person may never have become president of oh, the United States of America. Oh, you're talking about Obama. Yeah, he's number 44. Are you recording right now? Yes, I am. Oh, you're faking me out. I'm not faking you out. I told you you're opening show number 44, but you weren't really listening to what I was but saying. But I didn't think it was today. Yeah. Cool, cool. But does Dad want to say hi, or is he chopping broccoli? Mom, I forgot to tell you. What? Zoe got her driver's license. Oh, mazel tov. How cool for her. Yeah. She went to go take the written test. She aced it. Wow, cool. My darling, my precious son. Yes, mother. I'm going to hang up because I have to get ready to go to my game. Okay, well, have a great game. Going to a Chinese Chinese restaurant. You're going to a Chinese Chinese restaurant? Is that a, a yeah, restaurant for stu- stuttering Jews? I'm sorry? After you yeah, play cards? Going, no, that's where we play cards. You play cards in a Chinese restaurant? 
Yeah, not every time. Sometimes we play in a, a country club, and sometimes they play at an Italian restaurant. What's the name of the Chinese restaurant? It's called Hot Walk. Hot Walk? Hot Walk on Nordoff and Reseda. Okay, and they let you guys just sit in there and play and eat lunch? Uh-huh. That's pretty nice. How long have you been doing yeah. that? Long time. What's a long time? Long, long time. Ten years? Well, I don't know. Twenty years? Ten years? Five years? Maybe. Okay. How many ladies are playing cards? It's pan, so it's eight players. Oh, pan, that's right. Pan. It's not cards. It is cards. It's pan. Yeah, it's cards. Yeah. It's eight decks of cards. And you're all about the same age? You're all close to 80 or above? To how old? 80-ish. I said 39, 40. The, the other ladies, not you. Oh, 44. 44. That's what we're on, show number 44, starting right now. I am Citizen 44. Hey, Marky Mark, congratulations on show number 44. 40 freaking four. Love your show, man. Take care, brother. Rock on. Oh, my goodness. Last week was very exciting. I had my biggest sales day since working at Paris Green. And you are going to be very excited about all the wonderful things that Gabby has brought into the store this week. We have new reversible purses. They are so beautiful. They're selling like hotcakes. I mean, I don't even know what hotcakes are, but I know they're selling very quickly. We also got some beautiful Mexican silver bracelets and stackable rings, too. We also got a wide variety of new French soaps. The fragrances are going to knock you on your keister. This Friday is First Friday in Ashland. Come into Paris Green. Maybe have a cracker with some cheese or a cookie. 77 Oak Street, downtown Ashland, Oregon. We'll be there from 5 to 8 p.m. Hope to see you then. Bye-bye. Hey, Marky. It's Gabby, and I'm calling to wish you a happy 44th show. I know it's going to be the best ever because you're the best ever. Talk soon. Bye. Show 44 right now. That's what's happening. What's happening? Show 44 right now. See this? This is the microphone. My microphone. Mm. That one is yours. What's up? Say something in that thing, man. Check one, check two, check one. This is the first show where we introduce the twin mics. I've been sharing a mic with you and everybody else yeah. for 44 mm. shows. Would you like to hear a fun fact about the Beatles? Fun fact, let's go. Okay, you know the song Sgt. Pepper? I'm familiar. The song A Little Help From My Friends? Oh, yeah. Okay, you know the line... What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk okay, out on the me? The original line was, would you throw a tomato at me? Who wrote that line? Paul did. And Ringo insisted, insisted, Ringo did, that it be stand up and walk out on me. What would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and throw a tomato at me? That's what they were going to say. Yes. So you're starting a cleanse tomorrow for 30 days? No weed, no alcohol. No caffeine. No caffeine. No grains. No grains. No sugar. No sugar, no, no beans. Legumes, no tofu, no processed foods at all. Nothing processed. I'm going to try to do no oil at all. You said try. You either are or you're not. Well. Just going raw no, vegan? I'm not going raw. What are you going to cook? Just vegetables? Spaghetti squash, sweet potatoes. Is spaghetti squash one item? Yeah, it's a fucking squash and you cut it in half and you... You do it yourself with it, yeah, of course. Do you just do it? You do it with a fork? 
Yeah, you gotta roast it, and then it comes out like spaghetti. Oh. And then I have sauce on it. Is it good? What's the Fuck, sauce? It's ridiculous. I make a really good red sauce. So you cook? You know I cook. No, I know you do. You yeah. know I do. Yeah. You know who I spoke to a couple days ago, don't you? An 80s superstar. Who was it? His last name starts with the letter Z. His first name starts with the letter A. So he literally is on opposite ends of the alphabetical spectrum based on his first and last name, which I am just picking up on now. A, Z. Alan Zamuda. Negative. I don't know. (laughs) Try again. Adrian Zamed. Yes, that is correct. Adrian Zamed. Who's Adrian Zamed, Mark? He is the first of his family uh, as a natural-born American citizen. From where? From Romania. Wow. He was raised in Chicago, Illinois. Right. Guy was in Greece, too. He, uh... I think his first film was called Bachelor Party with Tom Hanks. He did some shit with Hanks. I don't know. Some little thing. We didn't actually talk about this. We did talk about T.J. Hooker. Right. With William Shatner. Heather Locklear. Yeah, and, and Bobby Darren, dude. Bobby Darren was in? Bobby Darren rolled in a few episodes in. Was he like a gangster? Was he like No, he was gang? another what cop. Was oh, whoa, Bobby no, he, Darren. Yeah, he was like this great-looking, cool, attitudinal cop. The dark-haired, wow. non-Star Trekian well, cop. He would have been kind of old by the 80s. No, he was looking good. He was still, no, he was sharp. Still sharp. Respectable huh? looking. Okay. He was a respectable cop. Wow. Yeah, so he did that, and then... You know, actually, Adrian missed the last, I think, two seasons because he ended up doing Dance Fever. Oh. Do you remember when he did Dance Fever? I do. That dude was built like fucking Schwimmer, man. Like a Schwimmer. Like Mark Spitz Schwimmer body. David Schwimmer? Built but like I meant, a... he's like a Schwimmer. The guy, he's, <laughs> he's built, built like, like a fucking in the pool. <laughs> he's in the pool every day, man. He laughs. He looks great. I told him, I said, your body is like a Schwimmer. He's, uh, Anyway, he's a super nice guy, and uh, and so he's going to okay. be on a show upcoming. I actually know who Adrian's is. His two sons are two of my best friends in the world. What are those boys' names? Is Zach and Dylan. Zach and Dylan do some kind of a cover thing called the they Everly... Do sh- they do a show called the Everly Brothers Experience. And just Google it. That's all I'm going to say. Everly Brothers Experience, the Zemed Brothers, they kill it they nail it they're really brilliantly talented they are brilliant and their father adrian was excited to talk about how excited he is for his excitable boys show 44 though is right now hey everybody mark Aaronsberg here welcome to citizen 44 this is show number 44. Yeah, we have done it. It's taken at least 44 other people besides myself to make 44 things happen semi-consecutively. And uh, big shout out to everybody. We'll get to that at the end of the things and the stuff. On today's show, we have a couple of great people. A couple good friends of mine, Mr. Gary Cout and Mr. Kevin Kennerly. Gary produced, in conjunction with others, an original Netflix documentary series called Flint Town. I highly recommend you check out the one season that's been made. It's only eight episodes. It's very powerful stuff. It's not what you think it would be. Don't have any expectations and you won't be disappointed. Regardless of where you stand on the side of authority or law enforcement or poverty, or the plight of the African-American, 
or people being poisoned or the shittiness of politicians. This kind of covers a whole lot of that really quickly. So check it out. This is our brothers and sisters. Also uh, on the show today, uh, Kevin Kennerly, a very well-liked, loved, beloved actor over at uh, the company over there out my window here over at Shakespeare, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I've known this man also almost as long, if not the same amount of time, as Gary. And uh, I've seen him perform. He's incredible. And I think you will really enjoy his voice. And even more so because he is the first chat that I've had that is going out uh, with two microphones versus the one microphone that you would notice uh, picked up my guest voice perfectly beautifully well and my voice sounded like maybe I was recording from a uh, close by cave well no more we have a lot of show it's a really beautiful chat with Mr. Kevin Kennerly and also a beautiful chat uh, with Mr. Gary Cowd here we go hi Gary hi Mark actually binged your show on Saturday. Oh, yeah? That's our brothers and sisters over there with shitty water, and they're killing each other. Yeah, It's absolutely. outrageous. Yeah. How'd you even end up in that project? Well, I know the directors of the project, uh, Zach and Dre. I've worked with them for years, actually, on a lot of commercial projects and in corporate video projects, but they're documentarians, too. And we did a feature documentary called T-Rex. Well, they did, and, and I kind of got involved with that because, again, I was working with them on other things. And that was a documentary about a teenage boxer from Flint, Michigan, who made it into the 2012 Olympics, which was the first time women's boxing was in the Olympics. And so they spent a lot of time in Flint filming with her and her family and the community. And they had an affinity for it, you know, and had hope for it, you know, and seeing the grit that yeah. those people have. I mean, Flint is a tough town. They've gone through a lot. Really? And and they're really warm people, you know, middle America, Michigan. And they were thinking about doing maybe a project on policing in America because this was around the time that Ferguson and, and Baltimore and New Orleans and all right. those things were happening. And, you know, they wanted to do something maybe that explored the issue of police and community. And since they already had the connection to Flint... And imagine that that's got to be kind of a pretty tough place to be a cop. Why not try it there? They already had knowledge of the community. They had familiarity with the city. The city knew who they were as well. The documentary T-Rex, which is still on Netflix also, had done well and actually kind of shined maybe a better spotlight, if you will, on the city. Right. And uh, because I was still working with them on on other projects, uh, they asked if I'd want to jump in on this one and... Absolutely. It just, it sounded amazing. So it came from spending time there. Yeah. I mean, they're from Oakland. Dre lives in Oakland. Zach lives in Berkeley at the moment. Are they African-American? No. No, they're both okay. white. Okay. Uh, and then the third director that joined us, Jessica Dimmick, she's a, a New Yorker. Are there any African-Americans on the team? There are some African-Americans okay. on the team. Okay, I mean, that just struck me just now. Yeah. It's like, okay, so where's the color balance? Well, you know, if you, when you watch a documentary, Flint does seem like a predominantly African-American city. 
I can understand kind of in retrospect when you're thinking back in some of the more powerful moments and maybe more powerful statements. But if you watch it through and simply only want to see how much white and how much black, there's more of a mix. But for sure, the black community is hit much harder in Flint than the white community. That's, you know, that's no secret. And they actually talk about that specifically. They were saying how the whole thing is based on poverty. And since the black community is primarily the poverty-stricken area, this seems to be where there's a high concentration of difficulty. Yeah. Even with that store closing, I mean, that was so compelling that they closed that store and and it seemed reasonable based on what it was producing, but at the same time, when that guy was talking about... This is where I get a shot. This is where I I go. I can't go and nobody else has what I want. It's dangerous to go. And that was what was crazy. He said it was more dangerous to go to another location than the location... For the reason that they shut the place, which was murders in the parking yeah, lot. Yeah, these are complex issues. They are not easy to solve. Yeah. Absolutely. So what's their water situation now? Are they still out of plastic bottles? For sure. When we started filming, interestingly, it was late 2015, but before the water crisis broke. Oh, wow. That's that right. was a horrible gift. Yeah, what I've always said is what's gold for documentarians is unfortunately usually really bad for the people you're making the documentary about. Um, But again, we picked Flint because we knew that it was a city in crisis um, in terms of money and policing. We knew that their staffing levels were incredibly low for a city its size. In the show, we talk about how, and somebody actually says it on camera, you know, they had the highest median income of any city in the world when the auto industry was in its heyday there. And we're talking the 70s, 80s, even early 90s. And then things changed, and they changed quick. And now it has one of the lowest median incomes. And the city used to have 200,000 residents. Now it has 100,000 residents. Mm. So in the show, when we drive down those streets during the day and during the night, and we go past what they call abandons, that is absolutely the truth. Every block has... Pretty much half the houses are abandoned, vandalized, burned, or demolished. And the houses that are still there, that people are still living in, some of them don't look so good either. And um, that's because people just packed up and left. It was unemployment. It was crime. So at the same time as they were dropping uh, economically, crime was shooting up. They were the murder capital of the country. So the water was switched in 2014. And it took the better part of a year, over a year, for the evidence to start coming out that because of the water switch, lead was now leaching out of the city's pipes into the water. And, of course, over the course of our filming, it became a bigger and bigger crisis. We chose, of course, not to switch focus and make it about the water. And I've read some criticisms and commentary that we didn't focus enough on the water, or once the water crisis hit, that really became the major problem in Flint. It was no longer about crime or policing. We wanted to tell a bigger story about policing and community. We wanted to use Flint as the example, but we wanted it to be something that can be applied nationwide in in every community. So if we focus on the water crisis, well, then that would become a Flint story. It's undeniably a part of the Flint story, so we were careful and hopefully craftful in how we incorporated it. At any rate, flash forward, money has finally started coming in. Indictments are also going out. When we went back for some pickup shooting in early 2017, there was a press conference in Flint, and they handed out indictments to several of the public officials that were involved in the crisis. We filmed that. 
And they were tearing up streets left and right. I mean, they were... Oh, they're getting oh, busy now. Oh, yeah. There were crews all over the city with big backhoes and... Uh, when, when is this now? They started replacing pipes probably before the end of 2016. And when we were there in spring of 2017, there were a lot of pipe replacement going on. Okay. Yeah, we actually drove around and got some shots of it. I, I don't think it wound up in the documentary. It ended up being sort of a year in the life of Flint, late right. 2015 to just after the election. Are you still shooting there? No. The show itself is over. Okay. Yeah. Now, if Netflix elects to do uh, a second season, then we'll presumably go back and... Uh, Can we cheat and go to the end? Because I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it is a story. I mean, it's a, it, yeah. it's a, it's a narrative. Well, Trump won the election. What? <laughs> yeah. When you get to that point, yeah. um, we were filming on election night. We had uh, we had a full camera crew. The directors were also all all camera people. Kind of did a a man on man offense. It's kind of the way we did a lot of the shooting, but definitely for election night, you're gonna go to this bar. You're gonna go to this restaurant. You're gonna go to the home with these people. You're gonna you know go to the streets. You're gonna go to the polls. Cover everything. Yeah, I think on election day we had seven cameras rolling. Yeah. Was it exciting? Exciting is one word for it. Uh, <laughs> I do like the episode when Knucklehead shows up in town. Yeah. And starts making a political a statement and then in the, the mayor church. shuts him down. Yeah, she actually was the pastor. And uh, and then he ripped her on, on Twitter. Tw- Twitter? He's the only guy that's going to inspire us to do anything different well, ever. Did you go to the march uh, on the weekend? Any of the marches? No, I sat out here while Watched I was. Watched the group yeah. here? Yeah. I was in Medford with my family. Yeah. And a lot of Ashland was there for sure. It had to have been a thousand people. You know, this is one of the most fantastic times in our lives, you and me. It's incredible. I think about that for Flint Town. That, again, it's it's a documentary that shows, you know, some pretty harsh things about Flint. And the, you know, police force, you know, has mixed feelings about the, the finished product. The mayor's office has mixed feelings about it. But it's not untrue. And sometimes you have to uncover what is... Truth? Difficult, yeah. What's difficult? Well, it must in, be actually a good in tool order to for do them. something about it. Well, yeah, some money has been raised. There's actually a a charity for the police, and they've seen an influx of contributions hmm. since the release of the show. I know they got to a point where, you know, they were super stoked. They were at like a forty percent reduction in overall crime and. Right. celebrating and right. the next thing you know hey man we got to sell all the guns in the evidence room we have no money right we got i think it was six murders yeah. that happened all within yeah. a week and they went from thinking that they, they, they licked it it was right. the ultimate conflict for a perfect film like a yeah. narrative film yeah. that was happening for real because you got excited for these people you thought this dude's doing his job they're cracking down they're yeah. shutting down the store and next thing you know they're back in shitsville yeah did they ever recover from that Yes and no. You know, in Flint, it's just a constant, you know, one step forward, one step back. Seems more like you know, one and two. Maybe. I mean, I think overall the water situation is slowly, you know, getting handled. I think we've yet... Any of it now? If your pipes have been replaced okay. and you're on a particular block, I would guess so. I, I don't know for sure. I'm, I'm sure everyone is also still just a little leery, you sure. know, even if they say the water is fine. What um, were the contaminants in the water? Lead and legionnaires. So that was something that came up kind of late. There were a few deaths that the causes were not fully explained. And I believe there was some exhumations and some late autopsies. And it was determined it was legionnaires. And it's most likely caused by the water crisis. 
I'm glad to hear that they're doing something because I haven't reached that point in the series yet yeah. of doing anything other than seeing them handing out cases of water yeah. to people. Yeah, it's we stayed in a hotel in Flint. You know, we felt it was important to be in Flint. Yeah. I mean, it just logistically kept us close because yeah. we had all those interviews of the officers and the community members on the black background were shot in the hotel. And we, I like that, by the way. And we were, I like oh, how thank that you. was done. We know we shot those off and on over the course of the entire shooting. We had it pretty much just set up permanently in the in the hotel. Yeah. And we just had a kind of a constant open door. Like, if anybody wants to come in and get interviewed. There were certain topics we wanted to cover. There were certain people we wanted to get. And um, it was just a great device to use. And the directors and the editors used it extremely well. I think it and, looked and great. those were just really intense interviews. I listened to a few, and I was right on the other side in the production office that we had set up. In the hotel, there were huge pallets of water in the stairwells. And, you know, I'd shower, but I'd brush my teeth with bottled water and, of course, drink bottled water. So... What was it they said? Something about Mexico where you can't drink the water. Mm -hmm. What was the line? Do you remember? Oh, man. Um, it was Trump that said it. And I think it was his opening remark. Somebody must have wrote it for him. There's no way that dude came back like that. <laughs> so is there a time. potential for the a second season? And, and when would you find out? I don't know. Out? Just tell everyone you know to watch it. That'll increase the chances of a second season. And how has <laughs> the, the viewership been? You know, uh, we don't know. You know, Netflix keeps those numbers pretty close to the chest. So they just let you know. It's like, okay, we, we would like to buy some more. Yeah. So if it goes well... And a lot of people watch it. It's getting great reviews. It's gotten great reviews in the industry and out there in media and journalism. You read the Netflix reviews and they're mostly very strong. You know, there's some people who don't like it and there's very particular reasons why people don't like it. It's very interesting. You know, you go into it with a particular attitude about the police. You know, as soon as they're not supported, you don't want to keep watching it. Right. But if you have an open mind. Recently, I watched it with a friend, very liberal, you know, but very, uh, very community minded and very interested in what it had to say and I watched just over the course of one episode, episode three in particular, where, you know, she's feeling one way about someone and then all of a sudden she kinda has to decide, oh, am I wrong about this person? But that's what's important. Plus cops are real people too. They're not one dimensional, they're not their uniform, they're certainly not the actions of other police. That perception problem is all of it. And the same, the other side, you know, I mean, both sides look at the other side as one-dimensional pieces, as a narrow ideology. It's sad, actually, because it we're sad. not seeing each other as even people anymore. No. I mean, when they started talking about cops just getting killed sitting in their cars at the grocery store. That's not okay. So is, you know, shooting somebody in a car who is trying to tell you, I, I, I'm a gun owner, I have a concealed weapon, and... You know, I just want you to know that, and then he gets killed. That's yeah. not okay. You know, none of this stuff is okay. We've all got to, you know, take a step back. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The one line I heard, I think maybe in the last episode, was about having to learn how to police differently in brown and black areas. Mm -hmm. I remember that standing out specifically. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just policing has to change entirely. We didn't get a chance to go into it in Flint Town. I think there may have been one brief line about it. But Flint was also a model policing community. Now, we're talking back in the 50s and 60s when it was, it was truly the American dream. And cops walked the streets. You know, they're a beat cop. They knew the neighbors. They knew them. And in the show, I don't think you've gotten to this point yet, but there's a shooting on the street. 
and uh, a house got shot up and a couple kids got hit and lots of police officers, lots of yellow caution tape. And one of the council members, Eric Mays, came down and I happened to be hanging out with the camera crew that night and went down there. And there's a neighborhood woman who was interviewed where she's talking with the councilman. And she's talking about, she grew up on that street. She's lived on that street for 50 years. Everybody knew everybody. The kids stayed out till, you know, past nighttime. There was no crime. Everybody had jobs. It was a very mixed community. Nobody had a problem with the police officers. Is she, is she the one who just said, I'm sorry, I'm tired? I don't think so. Okay. Again, Because there was another similar scene okay. where a community member's talking about the history of Flint and how... Was Flint it Flint. in an interview or was it out on the street? On the street. Okay, it might have been her. And, uh, and I had to go back later to get a release from her. And I knew the street, we had some notes, so I went back and knocked on her door and she was home. And we ended up having a conversation for like an hour. Mm. And, and listening to how different the community has changed in completely the wrong direction. You know, in America, we're supposed to be moving in the right direction. We're not supposed to be moving in the wrong direction. Maybe you have to go in one direction first before you can actually get to the other direction. Yeah, but how far? We're getting close. Well, we have to be. Yeah. Because just what I see with happening with the youth, that is the most important movement probably in the history of this country. Oh, absolutely. Right? Oh, my gosh. This second, it's so beautiful. These kids are completely going to change our country. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going to do it soon. But if this shit didn't go down, dude... They wouldn't be doing this. So, yeah. you, like, you know, I talk about Crater Lake. It was this explosive, violent, natural mm. occurrence mm. that created something spectacularly right. beautiful. Right. Really amazing. Nothing like it in the world. I and mean, I one think of the most beautiful things in the world. are the same thing. Mm. We have to sometimes go through this insanity in order to get to the other side. We need a job to do. Mm. We need to save ourselves. Well, look, my personal beliefs, call them spiritual, if you will, we're just in a huge pendulum, everything from, you know, small things like your financial situation all the way up to, you know, the rise and fall of nations. Things are just constantly going to be going to one side and then just gravity is going to take hold and, and momentum is going to peter out and it's going to go back the other direction. And again, we don't know how far some things can be measured in, in decades, some yeah. things can be measured in millennia, some things can be measured in, in days. Yeah. But it's inevitable. The one constant in the universe is change. Well, I love the show, and uh, I appreciate the show, and I, I, I'm glad that it's getting watched. And maybe this will change some minds, and maybe it's a job that we've created. They're put in a position of futility. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. we are. And that's because of us, not right. because of them. Right. If we could just conduct ourselves be better, mm-hmm. they would be old beat cops chewing gum, talking old ladies as they walk them across the street. And maybe that'll come again. And look, there's always the dark side of human nature. And so it feels like there is probably always a need for you know some kind of role for what. But many more of us are good people. And it's circumstances that drive people to do certain things. You know, it's circumstances that as a community are, are, are not beyond our control. You know, we have to reprioritize things that will make life better for good people who are unfortunately not doing good things. Well, and just think about it. Most of these people that are ending up on the side of violence, they're just people. Took a wrong turn based on their environment. I mean, they didn't ask to rob liquor stores or be drug addicts or yeah. kill people. Yeah. They don't want that. Grow they really the, don't want it. Grow up in the project. This was not their dream as yeah. a little kid. 
Yeah. How long have I known you now? Almost the whole time I've been here? Almost the whole time I've been here. I mean, we met when Samara was at the preschool, and she was, what, three? How so that was now? 2007. So 11 years. Okay. How long have you been here? I've been here 15 years. Okay. Yeah, got here in 2003. Still like it here? Oh, yeah. Love it. Love it because we live in a bubble. You know, look, I get out. I get to Flint, Michigan. You yeah. know, that clearly bursts any bubble I might have. Trips. And I'm fortunate to be able to travel a lot for work. Last year I was in India and I was in Brazil. And, oh my God. I mean, we filmed in a place in India where other than television and advertising and movies... I think a lot of the people in the community where we were had never actually seen a white person, had never actually seen anyone speaking Western English directly. There's definitely a lot of, you know, English speakers in India, but not in this city. You yeah. know, most of them were definitely Hindi or Marathi and their standard of living is drastically different. It was incredible. So I certainly appreciate greatly what we have here, but I'm also keenly aware of the difference of what we have here and, and what other people have. And not just, you know, the difference between a small village in India and, you know, here in, in National Oregon, but even just other cities around the country that, that maybe it's not an issue of uh, sanitation and infrastructure. It's just it, an issue of traffic or air quality or crime. You know, for our kids to be able to walk to school and walk downtown and for us to be able to go 15 miles in 15 minutes... Any time of day. Yeah. I mean, that's a gift, that's man. That is that is just yeah, well, awesome. So and then and then to look. No, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. No. From Chicago, moved around to the Northeast, and then and then Atlanta from pretty much first grade to end of high school. And then I moved to L.A. for college. Then I went to New York for a couple of years, and then back to L.A. And then after being in L.A. again for ten years, just wanted to get out of L.A. Really, and Ashland was just where my ex-wife's sister and her family was living right. and we visited and we were like, how about there? Like, that would be great. Yeah. You know I mean? For me, I can fly to LA. I can drive to LA. I did for a number of years. You probably remember. I, remember I was yeah, just like, I was the road warrior, man. Yeah. <laughs> I've literally driven to LA and back over a hundred times. Wow. Yeah. Easily. But then actually when I met two of the directors from Flint town, they live in San Francisco and while they will work anywhere they need to go, like me, if there's a choice, and a lot of the work we do for Apple, there's that choice, we yeah. shoot in San Francisco. So actually, since like 2012, San Francisco has kind of supplanted LA as my home away from home. Which is nice and close. Oh, it's much, much, much Super better. Nice and there was actually a short stint where Portland was where I was doing a lot of work. And that's actually not that much closer than San Francisco. But again, it was great. You know, yeah. to be able to go to Portland and hang out in Portland, you know, it's just, to me, in a sense, it's a big version of Ashland. I mean, I think of Portland as the biggest small town in America. Yeah. And then what I also tell people is, if 15 years ago, you would have said that I was going to move to Ashland, Oregon, a small town, middle of nowhere, and love it, I'd have said, you're, you're high. Yeah. You know, no way. Yeah. And now you are high. And, here, so. and 15, yeah. <laughs> Everybody else here is And high. that's something else, too, we're talking about. Like, how do we make large systemic changes that will alter the the future for so many people. And one of them is fix these fucking drug laws. The you know, incarceration rate. Yeah, it's, it's out of control. So I, out of control. But you know, this is part of the thing. I think we have a list and all of those things are on the list as literally a priority. And all this youth activity 
Once they see that they have power, when things start really happening, they see that their energy is not futile and not wasted. They will go after everything. Mm. I guarantee it. Mm. I can see it now. I, I think it's actually pretty exciting for them as, as they see that the energy that they put into making changes actually shows results. They will begin to start going after all the other problems that we have because they will realize that they are in control of their own future. I'm hoping. For sure. For me, I've seen the left struggle with the enormity of the problems we're trying to solve, the number of problems we're trying to solve. We're spread thin. One's trying to make change, and the other side has it easy because all they want is for things to stay the same. Right. So yeah. <laughs> their, their action is inaction, yeah. and our action is a shit ton of action. Yeah. And, you know, where do you give your money? Where do you give your time? Which causes do you support in various ways? There's so many things, and I don't know. Do you knock them out one by one? Like you said, do you find foothold in one, and yeah, then that springboards you into another? One thing. As a matter of fact, I sat at the middle school for an hour with my buddy, the principal. Which school? The middle school. Ah, with and, Steve. Yeah. And I've never seen him talk like this so passionately about how upset he is that public education is on the zero list. There's mm. no energy, no money, and he is now just behavior managing a facility. Mm. And it's becoming a prison-like situation, even for him, where he's kind of the warden now. Well, it's literally, they wanted to become a prison-like situation. I think it's uh, Santorum, you know, who said that god-awful thing yesterday on the news. So he's on a panel on CNN, and uh, he says... You know, what we really need to do is we don't need to teach these kids, you know, to be activists. We need to teach them CPR. CPR? Yeah. So that when their classmates are gunned down, then they can help them and help save their lives. Everybody on the panel just shook their head. What a ridiculous statement. And I think it was him who went on to say, I read a follow-up to that. Maybe I'm confusing it with somebody else. But we need to fence in our schools and have single point of entry. That, and it, that is a description. That's right. Of a that's why I thought of uh, I yes, thought of that because of what you just clear. said. It's, the only thing it's you didn't say was barbed wire or mm-hmm. shooting tower. Right. <laughs> which is where the principal would sit. Not why I moved to Ashland, Oregon, and certainly not what you know I would want for any uh, kid. You know. Uh, no. Yeah, it was it was Van Jones who was on that same panel, and he said, you know, I've I've got a daughter in school, and I don't want to have to have her think about CPR or triage or tourniquets. I want her to think about her math test and her science paper and her social studies project. That's what I want kids to be able to focus on. It's just psychology 101. We're just so vulnerable. Oh yeah. And right now, maybe more than ever in the history of our species, we're so vulnerable and we want to do the right things. I think we all really do. Now we may disagree on what that right thing is, but we honestly believe that it is for the better of everyone, right. our, ourselves, our family, our community, our country, our world, if we look at what someone wants to do and see that, that they think that that will be a good thing, then I think that's a place to start. In other words, you know, we look at, not we, but certainly many of us, uh, at times we, you and I probably, we look at something that the right wants to do and, and we're like, they're doing that because they want to hurt people. Because they want people to stay poor, because they want, you know, countries to go to war, because they want people to starve. Well, do they really? 
you know, probably I mean, not. Mostly. Probably not. I mean, if they're maybe there the, maybe the big companies, stuff. there's some you know profit-driven calculations. Right. But again, forget about the politicians. Forget about even the pundits and the in the in the media people who again they're using these these psychological tricks subconsciously or consciously, and they yeah. are you know working on keeping us riled up. No, let's just go to the rank and file. Let's go to the you know citizens. Let's go to our friends and family and neighbors yeah. and community and be like, okay, if they want something to happen. What's their motive? Well, you know, their motive is, is, is positive. And, and likewise, they look at us and they're like, the things that we want to do, they think we have nefarious intentions. Right. But we don't. You know, we also have good intentions. We need to sit down and say, what you want to do, you want it to have a good result. What we want to do, we want it to have a good result. Let's, let's talk that through. Let's agree on something we can do that we both feel could lead to a good result. Easier said than done, for sure. Instead of having an immediate reaction that what somebody else is trying to do is hurtful purposefully and you're making an assumption too without actually digging and having a conversation with someone your assumption is that they want a negative outcome let's take it back to like the flint show so there's the cop who pulls the kid over pulled into his garage he's like did you not see me you know when you see a cop what are you supposed to do he puts him in handcuffs he puts him in the back of the car what was his intent his intent was to you know scare him a little bit he was always going to let him go and say, don't do that again. You know, don't do anything that's going to make me think you're up to something. So again, what he did, you know, may have been construed as over the top or negative, but his goal was good. Somebody could be walking by and seeing it, you know, without knowing what's going on right. and think, oh, look at the cops are coming down on young black men again. Yeah. I, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the classroom. If children are not taught how to think, reason, and figure out how to get along with everybody... We're never, ever going to fix anything. We have to be able to maximize our ability to love and have compassion for each other. Mm -hmm. But if you're always worried about yourself, fear never allows you to include other people. Because when you're mm -hmm. afraid, you're thinking of your own safety. And if you're constantly being battled, wherever you are, Flint or anywhere else, it's always a defense mechanism. You're always protecting yourself. So you don't seem like a Southern boy to me, dude. No, I had an accent. Did you? Yeah, I say y'all a lot. So, I love southern so, food. So I'm trying to feel southern Oregonian. Really? Well, no, I think you've made that transition. How old are you? 50. When did you turn 50? Uh, last August. How's that? You know, still coming to grips with it. Okay. <laughs> it's well, fine. You, you feel pretty good, though. You're yeah, a healthy yeah. guy. And yeah, you I feel good. You got a good job. You got a sweet family. You got a new beautiful wife. Yeah. Your kids are healthy. Yeah. So what did your parents do back in the day? couple different things. So my dad went into the army very early, just did a couple years of service. Uh, fortunately, it was in between conflicts. Are they still around? Yeah, they actually, they just moved to Mountain Meadows. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, we, uh, we moved my parents from Atlanta, where they have been for 45 years, to Ashland. Wow, when did this happen? Thanksgiving. Oh, what a perfect time. Just past Thanksgiving. Wow, that's yeah. fantastic. And, um, and my mom went into teaching, and, uh, and then my dad, after the army, got into the electronics business working for some, some companies, moved to the Northeast, and then got an opportunity down in Atlanta for a company. Eventually went in and uh, put up his own shingle in sales repping for audiovisual and early computer stuff. Oh. Um, my mom worked uh, in interior decorating, and then eventually went into real estate, and then my dad followed her into real estate, and then my brother, who'd been in the restaurant business, went into real estate. And then my sister-in-law, who was a chemist, um, 
went into real estate. Well, they should have just opened one thing together. Yeah, well, they did. They were, I mean, they oh. were, they were, you know, they, they had their, the Cout team, you know, oh. um, and uh, they went back and forth between different brokers. And then they, they've all done that for years. So I was the one who bucked the trend. And at times they were like, you should come back to Atlanta because the film industry here is really kicking off. Or, you know, if you come back to Atlanta, you'd be a great real estate agent. And I probably would be. But, you know, couldn't leave the business. Yeah. And so finally, my nieces, my brother's daughters, one is about ready to graduate, graduate school actually. And the other one is going to be a senior in college next year. And they're both out of, uh, out of Atlanta and certainly out of the, out of the house. And then, of course, Simi is in college right now. But we still How have... How could that be? Eh, crazy, huh? But we still have Samara. And she's got a number of years before she goes off to college. And it was really time for my parents to stop working, finally. Yeah. They just kept doing it. And they've been coming to Ashland for years. They've been coming to Ashland just about every year, sometimes even twice a year since I've lived here. And I've always talked about moving here. And so with the grandkids... Most of the grandkids, you know, gone and, and out of the nest. But one still in the nest, if, if now there was a time to spend Perfect. more time in Ashland, it, you know, it would be, it would be now. And, and again, if they don't leave Atlanta, they're going to, you know, still get potentially sucked back into the business. Yeah. Um, 80 and 78. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that was a great thing. You know, wonderful. I mean, in a sense, a dream come true. I, I have not lived near my parents in 30 years, yeah. not even close. You know, I've been across the country in, you know, L.A. or or Oregon, and even New York is not that close. Yeah. I can drive to their house in one minute. Do yeah. they get out much? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they've got tickets to OSF. They've seen shows at the Cabaret Theater. They get out to dinner, and they're part of the Martin Meadows community, and that's a very active community. So they have music events and, and movie nights, and my mom is in, the, is in the chorus, and, and my dad's getting involved with one of the committees there and m meeting tons of new friends. Yeah, it's great. And they're spending time with Samara and getting out and about, and yeah, they're, cool. again, finally retired and, and doing it right. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, brothers and sisters? Yeah, one brother. Three years older in Atlanta in real estate. He's not doing buying and selling. He's actually doing coaching, real estate coaching and expansion. It's kind of the new thing in the real estate world. Yeah. And with my sister-in-law. Yeah. Yeah, it was just the two of us. I imagine you did well in school for some reason. Yeah. I mean, I could just did see. Well. I mean, you're you're a smart guy, and I could see you're not like a troublemaker too much. Oh, I was a troublemaker. Were you a troublemaker? Oh, yeah. Oh, let's hear about that. <laughs> yeah, I was suspended twice. How old were you when you were suspended? Once as a junior, once as a senior. In high school? Yeah. For what? Well, the first time was trumped up charges. Still holding to that. <laughs> um, I was making movies in high school, even back then. And we had made a, a short film for in an independent class. So we had a teacher that kind of supervised our independent class. And a friend of mine worked for the high school newspaper, and he wanted to write an article about the movie we'd made, and he wanted to see it. And I didn't have a copy of it, but I knew there was one on my, on my teacher's desk. Well, she was out that day. But it was a videotape, and so I took it and I gave it to him. So she comes back the next day wondering where the tape is. And I hadn't gotten it back from my friend and put it back on her desk. And so next thing I know, they went into my locker, which they have the right to do under you know suspicion. And there was the tape. You know, I'd gotten it back I, probably that day. 
hadn't put it on her desk yet. You know, yeah. I'm a kid, you know, maybe I was in there for a couple of days. And so I got suspended. But just the idea that it was something I'd made and my friend who wanted to write an article about it wanted to see it. So what was it, and it was a couple for then? You know, stealing. Stealing your own tape? Yeah, okay. pretty much. Anyway, so it was short. Not a huge deal. I think the fact that I was a good student, you know, went was in my favor there. But then senior year, I will admit that uh, by just sheer happenstance, wound up in possession of a key that opened up a lot of doors in the school. Yeah, like a master key. Not a master master, but uh, kind of more of an inside, more of an inside master. Okay. <laughs> and several of my classmates knew, and one of them turned me in. Ah. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, you know, there hadn't been really any major mischief as a result. Yeah. And, um, and again, because I was a good student, so they were a little lenient. Okay, Ferris Bueller. But they basically said, you know, if we find out that anything worse was done while you were in possession of this key, then we'll expel you. Oh, expel, not just yeah. suspend. Bye-bye. So oh. <laughs> they did not. Oh, good. <laughs> they did not. There was not. How'd you get the key? Uh, actually, I just saw it lying on the ground. You just picked up a key? I picked up a key. And you started sticking it in things? I recognized what it probably was. My <laughs> like shilling? It's all these lost. Oh, you can't include this. Yeah. Oh, this is bad. It's not that bad. <clears throat> no, it, was, it wasn't that bad. It. It, it was good stuff. Teenage, yeah. Angst. Yeah. Maybe some of it was just like I was a good kid, you know, I was a good student, and, you know, I had to, had to get some of my... Well, you have balance, man. Yeah. You gotta explore shit. Everybody gets in trouble. I mean, come on. Yeah. Unless you're, you know, Alex P. Keaton, the overachiever. <laughs> so what was the first, uh, what was the first bit of media that you had that inspired you to think that you would go into the direction that you've gone in professionally? Well, growing up in Atlanta, you know, I watch a lot of television and to me it was movies and TV Actually, I started in elementary school, and then I made movies all through high You're school. You're making movies in elementary school? Yeah, the first movie I made was in sixth grade. A teacher handed me a camera. It was sort of a side project, and I did a, just a quick little study in screen direction. So I filmed my brother walking left to right. I filmed his friend walking right to left. I filmed them walking together to a little convenience store near where we lived. And so it was like, you know, they're coming together, then they're going to here, and then they're returning. And then the next year, it was a stop-motion animation film in sixth grade. So I guess maybe the first one was fifth grade. And then uh, stop-motion animation film in sixth grade, which the class participated in, but I think I kind of took more of a, a lead on it. It was based on a kid's book, and it was sort of flat animation, but with cutouts. And in seventh grade, uh, my French teacher had this idea to make a little French thriller movie with the kids in the class speaking French and this little storyline. And me and my friend Mike kind of took the reins and we were the director and wrote it and edited it. And then after eighth grade in the summer, I did a radio television film program at a local university. And then 11th grade, we made a whole bunch of short films and music videos between 11th and 12th grade, I went to Northwestern for a summer program in radio, television, film. Senior year in high school, again, made more movies, made an hour-long uh, book adaptation of a kid's book, uh, a young adult book. And then I applied to film school. Went to film school, you know. Where'd you go to film school? University of Southern California. But, you know, that was in the middle of Hollywood. And again, I grew up in Atlanta. And while I liked big budget films and action films and Star Wars and, and all of those, I also liked independent films. I liked Woody Allen films. I liked Orson Welles films. I liked some foreign films. 
And so when I finished film school, I thought, yeah, maybe LA is not the right market for me with what I want to make. You know, what I want to watch and what I want to make are two different things. So I went to New York and my first job was on a low budget independent art film shooting in the winter. It was pretty rough. It was pretty brutal, but it was fun and met one of my best friends still to this day on that film. Our boss, the producer, when it was over, said, hey, normally I do TV commercials. Do you want to double your money and work on commercials? We were like, yeah, sure, why not? Never had thought about working in commercials. Never really even thought of them as a part of the film industry. And I have not stopped working in commercials ever since. So it's been 25 years, and I have worked on hundreds of TV commercials. Started as a PA, then a coordinator, then a production manager, and now a producer. Certainly along the way, I've done some more independent films. Since moving to Ashland, I've worked on six independent movies shot here in Southern Oregon. A couple movies in L.A. The biggest one was Rango, the, uh, the animated film, yeah. uh, which we shot live action with the actors on a stage. Oh, really? Yeah. And wow. then cut it together and then had the animation company, ILM, kind of redraw what we shot. And Has that ever been done before in that way? Disney used to do it a long time ago. Huh. Uh, but it hadn't been done for a long time. Yeah, seems like a reasonable way to do it. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. The director would say instead of um, motion capture, which we didn't actually do really any motion capture, but because he had these great actors, that he'd also worked with so many of them on the Pirates films, he said, I think I'd rather just bring everybody together again and we'll do e-motion capture. You know, so instead of people in a, in a sound booth saying their lines to themselves, essentially. Let's just get the actors together. And it was like playtime for them. It was great. It was like, you could put on a cowboy hat if you wanted. It didn't matter. You know, we shot it on video, multiple cameras, simple lighting, simple props, simple set dressing, simple wardrobe, no makeup, and uh, cut it together. And it was like, here, animate this, you know, redraw, redraw, redraw this. Anyway, it was, it was fun. It was, it was cool. It was big budget and it was, you know, big studio film in LA and, you know, I have to say I've never felt more like a pencil pusher in my career. During that project? Yeah. As a producer? Is that well, what I was, you were doing? I was the production supervisor for okay. the live action unit. Okay. Because uh, I knew Gore, the director, and his line producer, Adam, from the commercial world. And Gore does big budget films. And he still does commercials, too. But here they are making a big film, but they're going to shoot this sort of mini version of it on a low budget in a short period of time. And they're like, how do we do that? So Adam says, well, you remember Gary. He makes low-budget independent films. You know, that's in a sense kind of what we're doing. So they called me and asked me if I wanted to kind of help make that. And so I did. You know, so it was a couple months. And then, of course, it was a year of animating. Again, that experience reinforced the fact that I'm not that interested in the big budget. If I was able to produce a big live-action film... There would definitely be a lot of involvement, but I mean, it is so political. Yeah. You know, and you've got studio heads and heads of production and, and multiple producers and people deeply entrenched in the industry with big careers and big egos and high profiles and, you know, stars. And, and uh, yeah, it's a, different, it's a different thing. Again, that's where, like, I think the Oregonian in me comes out. It's like, no, man, I just want to have a good time. I yeah, want to make a good personal. product. I want everybody to, you know, enjoy themselves and, you know, we'll work hard and we'll, and we'll make something great. But, yeah. you know, we've got lives, too, you know, yeah. and this is just a part of it, yeah. you know. And then working with Zach and Dre, along comes, like, these documentary opportunities and these, in these corporate opportunities. Working for Apple, done a ton of work for Apple now. First Apple project we did was 2012. And since then, probably 15 videos. So some of them are the big launch videos at their Worldwide Developers Conference or other product launches. Sometimes it's 
a video for the website, like four. We did two of their Earth Day videos in a row, two years in a row. And when I say we, you know, I mean, basically we're working for Apple, working with their creative teams and providing the production side of it, the directing and, and uh, producing. And they're great. I mean, a great group of folks. And... Uh, and then still doing commercial stuff and still fitting in the occasional uh, independent feature. Haven't done one in a while, but I'm sure it'll was come Gary's up. Gary's your last one? Gary's was the Black last Road. one. Yeah. And yeah. of course, he's uh, gearing up to do another one this summer. I hear he's doing a comedy. Yeah. Well, uh, kind of. Kind of a comedy. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Kind of a comedy. Yeah, you should get him on and talk about stuff. We're working on him. Oh, good. He said he doesn't want to come on unless he has something to talk about, as if he has nothing to talk about. <laughs> That's fine. Right, right. We all do, don't we? You were the sole producer on Black Road? No, no. Actually, I was an executive producer on Black Road. Okay. I didn't actively work on it as much as I've worked on the, the other projects in the past. Okay. Like Redwood Highway, very actively involved. Walk in, and my name is Bruce, and Calvin Marshall, very actively involved. Not as actively involved in, in Black Road, but certainly proud of, of the result, and everyone's efforts You know, was, was great. And oh, Black Road was super fun for me. Oh, yeah, that's right. You worked on it. I just had bit. to take pictures of everybody having a good time doing their thing, man. It looked it was, like they did. It was ridiculous. It yeah. was one of my favorite experiences and, in that way. And that's what's so great about filming here in Southern Oregon. You know, that's what you get. Yeah. You know, you get that kind of vibe yeah. and that kind of experience. My very first film here, Conversations with God, I, I got a bit of that. And then came Calvin Marshall, and oh my God, that just rocked my world. It yeah. was an experience like none other I'd ever was had. Was that all shot here? Yeah, it was all shot here. Okay. Yeah, and it was the first time I'd worked with Gary and Annie. And did you know them before? No. Then? Oh. No. How did you guys connect? Well, they had reached out to the film office in Portland, mm. and because I was running SoFam, had started SoFam, and had made already a couple movies in the state, they knew me, so they recommended me. And right. the first time I talked to, to Annie, she called me, and she didn't actually even realize I w lived in Ashland. Oh. She thought maybe I had just worked on movies here, and so I knew the, the, the community and the market. But they were living in L.A. You know, oh, at the time. Yeah, I see. They weren't living in L.A. when they shot it. They shot it in 2007, and they moved up in 2009 or 2010. Okay. Yeah. I think 2009, because then we did Redwood Highway after that. No, that was in 2012. Walk-In was 2010. Oh, my gosh. Walk-In was all blend together. Blown? Yeah. And you started SoFam? I did. Uh, how did that occur to you? Well, when I was living in L.A., and, and still to this day, I'm a part of several, really, they're Yahoo groups, you know, but they have hundreds and if not thousands of people. And people use them as a, you know, sort of a hive mind, yeah. you know, resource sharing and recommendations and questions. And when... I moved up to Southern Oregon and started working on first Conversations with God, and then actually my name is Bruce, Bruce Campbell. I found out there was another movie shooting in town by a local filmmaker, and I got together with him. That was Ray Robison. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling him who I'm working with, and he's telling me who he's working with. And he knew some of the people I worked with, but not everybody. And I didn't know anybody he was working with. And I thought, how is that possible in Southern Oregon? It's such a small community. I understand that in L.A., of course. You know, there's 100,000 plus people working in film. Yeah. You could never know everybody. But we're still connected, you yeah. know, in these ways. So it doesn't make sense. We should connect. Now, there had been a group that had tried to do that, and it kind of petered out. And it never really achieved anything, you know, big. Yeah. And it was called SOFA, Southern Oregon Film and Video Association. So I thought, why don't we just start with the Yahoo group? So I reached out to everybody I knew. I asked Ray to reach out to everybody he knew. We got everybody together. And next thing we know, we had a Yahoo group of like 75 people. 
And then I thought, well, you know what? Maybe we should kick this up a notch. There's Oregon Media Production Association in Portland. It's a trade association. connects everybody, you know, much, much more substantially. There was a group in Bend I had heard about. There was a group in, in Eugene. And I thought, man, we should have one down here. You know, we'll kind of square the corner. So I talked to the film office, and they gave us a little seed money to register as a 501c6 and open a bank account and get a website going. And at the time, we called it Southern Oregon Film and Television. Right. So fat. Yeah. And that was mainly just, you know, to be catchy and, you yeah. know, and, and uh, have people remember it better. So six years later, we changed it to SoFam. We thought, you know, we've graduated. We've, we're entrenched. We're, you know, now we're respectable. And um, I think we can lose the cute, cute name. Um, one of my board members strongly suggested it, and she was right. You know, so now it's Southern Oregon. It was time. Film and media. And media. So yeah. fam. And so... It continued to grow, and we started, um, you know, charging some, I think, very reasonable dues and listing fees, and having monthly gatherings, and hosting screenings, and getting involved with the film festival, and and further creating relationships with the other groups and around Oregon, both of which have actually since <laughs> closed up shop. The one in Bend and the one in Eugene, mm-hmm. but the one in Portland is is going strong. We've always had a strong relationship with them and their executive directors, which change every couple of years. And we have maintained a very strong relationship with the Oregon Film Office. The current executive director is Tim Williams, and he's awesome. And uh, he's a big booster of Southern Oregon film. Uh, We have been instrumental in helping to continue the incentives that we have here in the state. We have been instrumental in adding new portions of the incentive that more directly benefit us down here because our films tend to be lower budget. Mm -hmm. So we got a special portion of the incentive created that helps lower budgets because there's a minimum spend to get access to the incentive, mm-hmm. which is way beyond most local projects. So we got kind of a new, a new level created. And then it's most recently, the indigenous level, right. the IOPIF it's called. And then we help create ROPIF, which means rural. Mm-hmm. So now there's also an additional bonus if you film outside of the Portland area. Oh. Salem, which is in a sense really, you know, just... Portland to us, but it benefits us down here, and hopefully some of the local filmmakers or visiting filmmakers are taking advantage of the new ROPIF. So that was great. How many members? You know, I don't run SoFam anymore. I stepped down in 2008 as the executive director, so I I couldn't say, but... Well, how many were there when you left? 200. Okay. At various levels, you know, from professional levels with listings to supporter members and student members and business members, so I, I I couldn't say. But I go to the monthly gathering still. I'm still a member, yeah. still a paying member. Yeah. And we still have great turnout and all of our cameras and cocktails first Wednesday of every month. So good, strong turnout. A lot of new members. Cool. So I can say for one, there's a lot of new members that I don't, I knew everybody, right? Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I knew every member. Yeah. And I don't know every member now. Yeah. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Are they uh, dialed into Southern Oregon University as well? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, one of our board members is Andrew Gay. He's one of the professors of the communications slash film program there, and we're going to be a part of getting that program upgraded to a major in film. Oh, cool. At the moment, it's just a a focus in the communications department. But Andrew is a member. He's a board member. 
Brandon Givens is a member. He runs RVTV, Digital Media Center. Our members go in and give presentations to classes. We teach special focuses. Oh, I know uh, Gary was Courtney, teaching. Yeah, Gary was teaching, yeah. writing and editing. Yeah. Courtney taught production. I've gone in and presented some of my work and talked to students just about film as a career. I've done career day at several high schools in Southern Oregon over yeah. the years. We've got a lot of famous Ashlanders. David Fincher went to Ashland High School. Yeah, that's what I heard. Matt Ross, who directed Captain Fantastic, and he's, uh, he's in Silicon Valley. The TV show. Um, Ty Burrell went to SOU. You know, we've had directors and cinematographers and line producers, you know, who've worked in Hollywood but then chose to either live here and continue working or retire and move here. The uh, writer, producer of three of the Star Trek mo- earlier Star Trek movies, Harv Bennett, moved here uh, when he retired, and we did a special screening, sold-out screening of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Q&A with him afterwards. That wow, I, that's so cool. That I, I led. That Hometown. was really special. He passed away a couple years ago. So yeah, you know, we've got a lot going on. Bruce Campbell is here. He's rocking it still. I mean, his Ash vs. the Evil Dead show, and of course, Burn Notice was a huge hit for years. Right. And, and all his past work, you know. Do you know uh, Meg Windows? I know Meg. She was in here the other day. Oh, fantastic. About she ended up in the black sheep with just her and Bruce sitting at two different tables. She said all these times that Bruce has been right there in her face and they've never engaged once. <laughs> they were up in, in the black sheep and she was sitting at a table and he was sitting at a table and they just both looked at each other and shrugged their shoulders. And she should have gone up to talk to him. You know, in, in situations like that, he's very, he's very approachable. Well, that's um, why it was presented to her. I told her that this guy yeah. is being put in your face so yeah. you can say hello and... and you have common interests. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen him. You know, certainly if I see him in town, I go up and say hi and see, yeah. see how he's doing. But yeah, that's the way it is, you know, and we've got the occasional star walking around town, you know, yeah. coming up for theater or, yeah. you know, or visiting friends. Yeah. Um, well, we got Shakespeare, so that attracts a lot of interesting yeah. individuals. Totally. Is SOFAM have anything to do with OSF at all? There's no formalized relationship between the two of us other than a lot of our members you know do work for osf yeah, make okay. videos for osf we hire the actors from osf to be in our movies and commercials yeah. all the time yeah um which is a you know what tremendous resource oh, the my. pool of talent that oh, you have yeah. right here in this hood yeah it's ridiculous it's ridiculous yeah ridiculous we're so blessed yeah with that it's so silly that yeah. you really can just make phone calls and go dude you want to be in this thing that we're going to do this thing yeah, the only tough part is scheduling around their shows with, you know, look, if you're shooting in the winter, it's no problem. Yeah. You know, if it puts your shoot on a Monday, it's no problem. Right, right. What are you working on now? Um, got a couple sticks in the fire. A little too early to tell. I'm a freelancer, so... Whatever comes, know, comes, right? comes and goes. Yeah. Well, I, I totally appreciate you coming in. I know you're a busy dude, and I didn't actually know that you were still kind of here here. Oh, yeah. Well, because I knew you were doing the, the Flint Town right, thing, right, and I didn't right. know if that took you away. I didn't know that it was over either. I will make you a promise that if I do go-go, we'll definitely have a farewell party, and you will be invited. So oh, then, you'll, then you'll know for sure. Okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> There's been no farewell party. I'm just gone temporarily. Right. Okay, that's a good thing. We'll just hinder on that. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, I appreciate you sharing, and, and thank you for the clarity on the show. Sure. I think it's a fantastic show. I don't know that shows are ever going to cure the world, but... Flint Town on Netflix. Netflix, man. How many episodes in the season? Eight. 
Oh, so I'm almost done? You are. You're almost done. Okay, when I'm done finishing the show that I'm going to put up today, I'll watch the rest of your show. Good deal. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Happy 44. Go for it, Mr. Citizen 44. How you doing, man? Doing all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. It's good. Thanks. <laughs> wow. Working on a show right now, show 44 for show number I four. saw that. So you're on it right now. Live? All day today? Yeah, all day. I'm sitting here in my underwear all day in my apartment in downtown Ashland talking to you all day because I got nothing better to do than to talk to you <laughs> all day today. Wow, I am honored. You should be. I took a CPR class yesterday. Did anybody die? No. Oh. No, the dummy's fine. Oh. Are you talking about you or the thing you worked on? Uh, everything's fine. Okay, Just, good. <laughs> uh, everything's good. Yeah. I wanted to get a little, you know, a little uh, community bound. So they offered a free thing with free, honestly, it was free pizza. Why didn't you just say that from the beginning? Then that would have justified the whole conversation. Right. Yeah. Right. But, um, yeah, they could have taken five minutes instead of six hours to teach me how to do CPR, though. Yeah, but that wouldn't have been worth the pizza. Right. That's true. And they bought good pizza, too. From where? And they had plenty of it. From where? Uh, I don't know what the place is called. Brooklyn Brothers. It's a chain. Okay. And there's been uh, some bad news on the concert front. What's that? They've uh, closed up. The three people are in a world of hurt. They gated up our area where we used to uh, watch all the shows at the Greek oh, Theater yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah, they put up a big fence, and they did it this week. And it's a horrible thing. My favorite place in the whole city, besides my apartment, is gone. Did they put up a poster of you in a circle with a line through it? Yeah, they might as well. <laughs> so why is it you call me Borgnine? I call you Borgnine because your last name is Ehrensburg. And if you're going to complicate it that hard with a name like Ehrensburg, you might as well just say Borg. Right. Didn't I tell you that my grandfather's middle name was Borg? That when Scotty and I went out and bought our own bowling balls, I had the name Borgie put on my bowling ball. Really? You don't remember that? When we used to go to uh, Holly... I remember we used to go bowling. Didn't we go to Holly Star Lanes on like Wednesday nights? Yeah. There's another tragedy that is just completely overlooked in this city our bowling alley long been gone oh really oh they tore that thing down as fast as humanly possible we had a lot of fun there man it was a great bowling alley and um you know had to have an elementary school because is, is that what's there <laughs> you know because we don't have enough schools for all the children it's the children i gotta run man thanks for being on uh, show 44 Bye. Congratulations. Appreciate that. Blog 44. Hey, Mark. It's Johan. I just want to wish you a very happy 44th show. You now, in Germany, we would say, Hallo, Mark. Alles Gute für dich und eine glückliche 44. show. Or the Russians would say, Sorok, Chiturje, or 44. 
Okay, hang in there. Love you. Bye. believe in any form of unjustified extremism, but I believe that when a man is exercising extremism, a human being is exercising extremism in defense of liberty for human beings, it's no vice. And when one is moderate in the pursuit of justice for human beings, I say he's a sinner. And I might add, in my conclusion, in fact, America is one of the best examples when you read its history about extremism. Old Patrick Henry said, liberty or death. That's extreme. <laughs> Very extreme. <laughs> You're actually my first OSF anybody to agree to do this. Why? You're the only one I've asked. That's why. <laughs> I did hit Brent up, though. I love Brent. I scared the crap out of him the first time I saw him. Huh. Well, this must have been maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I saw him walking down the street, and I only recognized him from the Seinfeld he was in. <laughs> did you see yeah. that Seinfeld? I did see the Seinfeld. Do you remember his name? Uh, I don't. His name was Lou Filerman, and it was the Seidler episode where he would sneak up behind Elaine all the time. Always be there. Yeah. Yeah. He was really funny in the show. He's hilarious. Yeah. I go, hey, Lou. (laughs) So I think he avoided me from then on. That's when I was living on Hargadine. So I saw you dudes every day, pretty much. I was in a show uh, called Carnival that I loved that uh, I think was on for two seasons, and they didn't pick it up again. So they never finished the show. And it was a brilliant, brilliant show. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Huh. It was pretty good. And all these creepy carnival acts, you know, this traveling sideshow. I think it was one of the roadies on that show. But I say, well, how does it end? He's like, I don't know. I never saw the end. They never oh, that sucks it. that they didn't oh, complete the task. It was so good. It was so good. Huh. But he's hilarious. You should come see Sense and Sensibility. He's really good. I took my son, uh, when did you guys do Animal Crackers? That's when... Uh, Six years ago. Mark was just killing yeah, Mark it. Mark yeah. yeah. And John Tufts. Yeah. So I took him to both shows. We had front row seats. And Brett came out and did a fake biting his leg thing when Sam was 10, I guess it was. And it was super brilliant. I can't believe he actually incorporated Sam into the show like that. Yeah. yeah he seems like a very nice guy. He popped he into the... The store, Paris Green, the other day. Nice. So he's been coming closer to me like a little squirrel, <laughs> like I'm leading with fucking Reese's Pieces and E.T. So I asked him, and I gave him a little sticker. We'll see if he... Very nice. But, well, I will talk to him, and I'll say I actually came in here to talk to you. Well, let's get through it, because maybe you'll hate this, and you won't want to tell him. That's so. a good point. I think it's pretty crazy how you and I actually met. How did we meet? Do you remember Lauren Sleet? I do remember Lauren Sleet. Do you remember a little thing we filmed up on Table Rock? Really? Don't you That's remember? That's the first time we met? Yeah. For her video? Yeah. Wow. And you running naked up there? I do remember that, yeah. 
I do remember that. I still have the prints that she made from that video. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's very cool. What year was that? That was about 12, 13 years ago. Okay, that's about yeah. right. Oh, and then, wow. yeah, she hooked me up with this cool Sony old school camera, yeah. and we went up to Table Rock, and I filmed some weird shit. <laughs> it was pretty strange. But that's actually my first real shooting of anything and editing of anything. Really? I'd never done anything like that before. It's pretty cool. How long you been here? Um, I came here in 1996 to work for six months. So it was a temporary gig with OSF? Yeah. How'd you get the gig? Uh, I was doing a bunch of silly commercial stuff in Detroit, and I hated it. You know, waiting tables and all this other stuff. Where in Detroit were you living? Uh, Linwood Davison um, at that point in time. The scene for the auto shows and all this other stuff is really big in Detroit. So you're doing industrials. You've done a lot of lawyer commercials, you know, tutorials and all this other stuff. How far were you from I was from doing Flint? pretty well. Oh, Flint is like, what, hour and 25, 145 minutes? Okay. Yeah. But... My lady said, you know, if you like Shakespeare and you like microbrew, you should go out to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I was like, okay, you know, because I was going into these auditions, and, you know, and I'd go through my audition and say, oh, oh, that was really good. Can you make it more black? And I hate that. I hate it when people say that to me. That um, is fucking racist, dude. <laughs> Doesn't that sound racist? It is racist. Of course it's racist. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, what kind of black do you want, you know? Because there's Denzel black, you know, but then you have Samuel Jackson black. You know, how about Obama black? You know, like, did what, you say what that of, to these people? I began to say that. Dude, I, people have said it to me here. You know, there are directors who've said it to me here with the best of intentions. What they want is a more urban feel. It's like, okay, but even can't then, they use language that's more appropriate then? But they don't know that that's inappropriate for the most part. People just what don't year know. is this? <laughs> this was obviously back in 1995, 96. It, I've had them say it to me as recently as like probably 2005. Seriously. Because people just don't know how to talk to you, they don't know what they really want. Shouldn't they think about it first, perhaps? I think they do. I think they honestly... So it's innocent. I don't know that is it's... Is there such thing as innocent? It's okay, so And is, that's very different. So what does that mean, though? What it, You're talking about smart people, too. You're not talking about idiots. These are super high-level creative people. Yeah, of course. Wouldn't you think they would uh, know better? I think they know better now. But with all the equity, diversity, and inclusion training, like, yeah, of course everybody knows better now. But now you have something that's happening, which is the opposite. People are getting mad by you trying to, to school them or hip them that you can't say that. That's offensive. You can't say that to most people. Or you can't say that to anybody, you know? People don't want to hear that. Well, how do we deliver an education without insulting people and doing it out of love? Which you are when you're, you're trying to you help use them. use English or whatever language they speak and you speak courteously. Yeah. And some people will receive it and some people will not, you know? What are you going to do? I can't force feed you, you know, kindness. You have to walk around with a fucking brochure on how to be, and so you don't have to put yourself in a situation? Yes, because you have have older folk who walk up to you, and they honestly believe that what they're saying to you is a kindly thing. You know? Dude, I'll tell you, when I first got here, I would do all of the little backstage tours and the intros and all of the, um, uh, what do you call it, post-show discussions. And I remember going to one of these events. It might have been a post discussion or um, a tea. And one of our donors came up to me, and it was really strange. He asked me something really off during the event. But after the event, he was so excited to come up to me and talk to me. And uh, he's like, you know, um, you know you're, you're great. You're great. I, I went to school with black guys, and I played football with them. And they were okay, but you, you're just like us. You're the cream of the crop. And these two folk from Stanford, 
standing there were just aghast that this man would say this to me. And I was so offended that I quit doing the events because I didn't want to have to field. I did not want to. It wasn't just one bad apple. People would ask you strange things. How do you feel about playing parts that are traditionally played by, you know, white people? Is that a bad question? Yeah, it's a bad question. Of course. Well, I'm playing ignorance on that question. The idea that somehow you've never fallen in love as a 17-year-old with a person who didn't love you back. And then you meet the girl of your dreams. And for whatever reason you can't be with her, you want to kill yourself. What was me? What was me? That's universal. Of That's course, not just of course. Black, I, white, didn't, I you know? needed the context. You know? Yeah. So how in the world is it a legit question as far as I'm concerned? Right, of course. You know, who can't play Romeo? You could play Romeo. Of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's absurd. And I think that it's felt or used as a novelty, you know, for some people. As opposed to, no, we're trying to tell a story where anybody can fall in love. Or anybody, you know, can be an emperor. Or anybody, you know, can be a... A politician, anybody, sure. you know, the idea that this tale is particularly European or European American is ridiculous. Well, was Shakespeare a bigot? I think Shakespeare was a bigot. Yeah. But I also think that Shakespeare was making commentary on things that were happening during his time. The idea that Othello somehow is a racist play. Yeah, of course it's a racist play. But Othello to me is a condemnation of what is happening during that time in society. Right. The idea that, again, a, a black male like Obama can become president, rise to the highest office in the world, and be baited, baited, and baited again and again and again. Yeah. You know, negated as a person, you know, negated as a um, powerful man, you know, as an intelligent person, is something we saw play out over the course of eight years. Eight years, they impeded him. Eight years, they stood in his way. Now, granted, his relationship with his wife was solid. That had nothing to do with it. But they treated the man with the most power in the entirety of the world in such a disrespectful manner. Such a disrespectful manner. And now look what we have, which is a disrespectful person exactly. being treated well. But, but that's the thing. That was the flip side of that coin. So to go back and look at you know Othello and say, oh, it's racist, well... You know, look how they speak about the man. The man is a warrior who rose out of slavery, clearly a traveled and intellectual person. And this woman falls in love with him, and he falls in love with her. And they ruin the most pure thing that he could have. And I think that the idea of calling him, you know, Blackamore is on the tip of everyone's tongue. Just like it was on every senator's tongue to call Obama a nigger. It was there. It was of right. And you could it feel was. it. Yeah. Even when you say the N-word, dude, you're saying it. You're exactly. just being a chicken shit, frankly, exactly. about it. Yeah, exactly. So there it is. The idea that somehow Merchant of Venice is racist, yeah, it's absolutely racist. But it makes the Christians look like a bunch of assholes. I'm going to force you, force you to give me this money, you know? I'm just going to coerce you. All the pressure in society is on you to give me this cash, okay? And I can't pay you the cash back for whatever reason. Right. And even when I can finally pay you the cash back, you're going to punish me because of what I've done to you? Yeah, you damn right I'm going to punish you for what you've done to me. I want my pound of flesh. And then they trick him out of his money and... Take all of his stuff. That must have been the Jews. And then everybody celebrates, you know? Like, is that a condemnation of being Jewish or a condemnation of Christianity? Right. You know, and I think that we always run into these ideas. Like, maybe Shakespeare meant it something very different. But the way it reads to me is that it's a condemnation of European society. I don't know. Well, it is. And we should be actually celebrating the fact that the person who came up with this material was extremely aware of what was happening. Absolutely. And is presenting this to us, for us, as yes. an educational tool. Yes. Women's, the state of, you know, of being a, a woman during that time, <laughs> 1600s, the idea that his women are strong and motivated and unfortunately have to 
mask themselves in male clothing to be taken seriously. It's a perfect idea, you know? It's like, you got to argue that he's a feminist. Does OSF take the opportunity to eliminate some of the ignorance through educating the public? Absolutely. Do they talk about these things specifically? I've never been to one of the thing things, you know? Go to a talkback. Okay. They have, you know, noon talks as well. And they really do address these issues. I mean, and you always have a lot of these conversations around casting. You know, when you have someone playing a role that is traditionally played by a male, they address it. You have a role that is traditionally, you know, seen in this particular light. And African-Americans don't play this role, you know, so now here we go. You know, where all the family is, you know, each a different color. We always address these issues. I mean, they have done a beautiful job, as far as I can tell, of really trying to hit people to the idea that, these are universal stories, you know, right. until they're not. Right. You know, when you're doing something like Off the Rails, that's a very specific story. So you have to do that. You have to say, this is a Native American story. This is why we're saying it this way. Please come and understand that we're trying to give you a little, you know, slice of, of the American experience. You know, just open your mouth, take a little bite and, and experience it. Do you think, though, when people come, it's fleeting? They may hear it. They may be having it presented to them, but like going to the movies, that's even a strong message movie. When they walk back out in the sunlight, they're still the same people? Of course. I mean, how can you expect someone to change overnight? But what it does is it plants a seed, and next time you see something that reminds you of that thing, it'll recall that moment, and you'll have something to build on. Right. You know, you just that, that thing becomes a fruit right. at some point in time. Not for everybody, but I think that... Sometimes you do immediately change someone's life in that moment. You really do. What about the children that are coming to see the performances? Well, of course. Of course. And more, spe- more importantly than any of the old people that are coming because their time is up anyway. Yeah. They're not going to be changing their minds typically. Well, if you think about the idea that, you know, this person's been coming 40 years. They brought their son and daughter to right. see these plays. Then their sons and daughters came back with their children. Those children are seeing theater because that one grandparent decided they wanted to go to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Right. And grandparents passed away, but the parents are still coming, you know? So you've already changed someone there. The idea that what they're seeing is challenging, different than their grandparents, you know, theater for these kids is, is a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a different world. It's yeah. a different world than when I first got here. Yeah. But the idea that that person continues to come to the theater, may one day work in the theater, may one day donate to the theater, but saw a challenging story and said, oh, I'm in class. I heard about that. This yeah. is what I learned. Yeah. Just like my, my daughter, perfect example, Hamilton. She loves Hamilton. But she knows all of this information about Hamilton from Hamilton, the right. musical, right. which made her go and learn more about Hamilton. Right. She was inspired. Yeah. So yeah. she goes to, to D.C. and she's walking through a museum and they, you know, they're leading a tour. And she's talking about Hamilton, all these things that she learned from this musical, and then actually looked up. It's like, oh, you're a really good student. She's like, mm, yeah, I guess. Or I just like a musical. You know, <laughs> you know what, though? It's because she's interested now. Yes. And that's what we're not doing for kids, is finding that place, that point of interest, where they're going to want to find out more. Exactly. And educate themselves. Exactly. So what do we have to do to drag? I mean, this is beautiful that some schools are privileged enough to be able to come here and have this experience. Most children never but have I, this. I think that, you know, theater in and of itself, and people hate it when I say it, but I think it's elitist anyway. You know, well, of it's course a hard, it is. Yeah, it's a hard thing. So how do you get a kid who doesn't have the means, the funds, you know, the parental support to come and see a play? Come and see a play. How do you make that possible? And I think OSF is really good. I mean, about funneling those plays to, to children who want to see it or students who want to see it. But you still have to get over here. 
you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, but I see busloads of kids coming through here, Absolutely. and they're having a fantastic Absolutely. experience. But a lot of those programs are being underfunded or not funded at all, cut. So what do you do about that? You know, we rather spend, you know, money on the football team as opposed to a theatrical experience. Well, let me tell you something program. interesting. At the middle school, their football attendance has dropped considerably. And their wrestling, which was a dormant sport, increased exponentially. Yep. So there are things. There's ebb and flow. There's things changing. Yeah, but I mean, what about their play attendance? You know, they do any plays over the middle school? Yeah, they're all Disney plays, dude. Yeah, exactly. I have nothing against Disney. But if that's a person's way in to the theater, then cool. You know, because maybe their kid will go on and do another play. And that play will be, you know, Perestroika. It'll be something very different. You never know where that will lead. As long as they have that program. But what about the places where they don't have those programs? Right, which is most places. Yeah, it's getting to be. When I was at the middle school, I could find children in the library and the cafeteria that wanted to have beautiful philosophical conversations. Yeah. Wanted to talk about real life. Yeah. And to imagine offering that opportunity to portray that for their fellow students and take on a real role, a meaty role that challenges the status quo. It just seems like a fantastic idea to at least once in a while challenge young people. To do what? What play? You give me a play. What play would you like to see him do? One of my favorite plays you guys did was August... Uh, Osage County? Yeah. You can't do August Osage County. No, you can't. <laughs> yeah, but what play? We're talking about the middle school. What play well, would you, you like to take, do? Well, you could make your own shit up, can't you? <laughs> can't you take things that have been done for yeah, an you adult? Could. You could. And not dumb them down, but make them but approachable? You have, you have to dumb them down. You know, they're doing hair over at... The high school. The high school, which I think is great. It's fantastic. You know? And a good chunk of the OSF, you know, youngins are in that play. And it's a great musical. And it's not, not only that, it, it's it's almost a piece that's stuck in its time, but we live in such odd times that it's timely again. You right. know? The idea that all these kids who are just getting ready to step out of high school as 18-year-old, these guys have to register for the draft. They registered me for the draft before they gave me my voter ID card. Literally. The day I turned 18, they registered me for the draft. What year was that? Dude, that was Detroit 88. 87, 88, yeah. I don't remember ever doing that. Registered me for the draft and to register me to vote. Yes. But draft first, vote second. Yes. Fight yes. first, vote second. Yes. Seems a little backwards. But if you think about the fact that they, okay, you can't have the nudity in it and you can't have anybody up here smoking weed and, you know, the, the elements that make hair, hair. But they're still telling the story. Yeah. You know, it's still, it's a toned down version, but it's telling that story. Yeah, yeah. And it's a musical and it's entertaining. So it's possible you know, but I think that if you try to take it to a middle school, people don't uh, hair because you automatically have that association with it being this one thing. Parents have a knee-jerk reaction to to what they consider inappropriate things, even though they have no idea what their children are watching on their phones. They have Dude, no their idea. games, their phones, they, everything. The way they're treating each other in school. Everything. Actually, middle school right now is the principal told me is a mess. Yeah, it's the worst. He's so upset. He said he gets absolutely zero support from the educational department of this country. And because of our representation at the top, people are being very mean to each other because they think it's okay now. Yeah. That's pretty crazy, dude. And 40% of them are smoking weed. <laughs> and they're under 15 years yeah, old. Yeah, exactly. How about that? Yeah, you're not even supposed to smoke weed before you turn 25. 25, when your brain finally settles into being what it's going to be. What are we making here? What are we creating here? <laughs> we'll know in about 10 years. How old are your kids? My kids are 26 down to 14. How many do you have? Four. Yeah, three daughters and a son. Is that with one woman? Uh, no. <laughs> How many times did you roll the family dice? <laughs> How are they all doing? 
they're doing great. <laughs> they're doing yeah. great. And they're each their own individual person. They're all rich in character. You know, they're happy people. Like they're functional members of society. Yeah. And that's all I could have, you know, could have bet on. Yeah. That's it. Like, okay, I'm teaching you to make the world a better place and you found it. That's yeah. it. And they're really, really lovely people. Mm-hmm. You know, smart. So, yeah. Well, look at you. Great. Well, look at their moms. You know, yeah. I, I have to say that. Look at their moms. Don't breed with Do- bad people. Don't what? Breed with bad people. No, that's really <laughs> stupid. But people do tend to sometimes pick crazy people. All the time. Well, unintentionally, of course. No. Well, you know, love is blind and all that shit. That's Shakespeare stuff yeah. right there. <laughs> so you grew up in Detroit. Yep. And uh, what were your parents doing when you were a, a wee lad? My mom is a domestic. She works for a gentleman who's like one of the hugest builders in Detroit. Uh, my father did all kinds of crazy jobs for the auto industry. All kinds of stuff. What were you doing? Were you a good student? Were you well-connected? I was not well-connected. I was not interested in going into the theater. It was never something I was going to do. I was going to be a prosthetic engineer. That's what I was going to do. Did you go to college? I went to college for the theater. But while I was there, I was taking classes, like art illustration, sculpture, for that degree. And I mean, I really didn't settle on doing theater until I went to audition for uh, grad school. And I didn't even know I was auditioning for grad school. You know, my senior year, one of my friends said, oh, they're doing Hamlet at the Hillbilly Theater. And so I grew up in Detroit and I, you know, gone to the Hillbilly Theater. And I was like, oh, I'd love, love to, you know, go, you know, be in Hamlet. And said, well, you have to audition for the Hillbilly. He's like, no, okay, I'll audition for the Hillbilly. So I grabbed my resume, headshot, and I head over to the theater. And they say, oh, no, 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 you know, auditions are at the university. I was like, okay. So I walk over across the street into Wayne State University and I turn in my headshot and my resume, and I'm not auditioning for the theater. I'm auditioning for the grad program. Huh. And I didn't know, but 15 minutes later, they were offering me a full-ride scholarship to go to grad school. Wow. The theater. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I'll do that. And what was your audition? What did you do? I did, um, oh my God, what did I do? Aaron the Moor from Titus Andronicus, and what is that play? It's the Ditch Digger speech. I can't remember what place. You know how long ago that was? A long time ago. That was a long time ago, yeah. How old are you now? (laughs) I'm an old guy. You're not old. I'm an old guy. Are you 50 yet? I'm an old guy. Okay. So, how'd you do in school? I did fine. You You were a good student? I was a pretty good student, yeah. Okay. You know, I was attentive. You know, was I a brilliant student? No. But I was respectful. You know, I knew the material. The things I was interested in, I did great. You know, things I didn't, I struggled in, like, like any other student. Did you have a pretty normal childhood, riding your bike, doing stuff, friends, all that stuff? Absolutely. I grew up in Detroit, and Detroit, when I was a kid, was absolutely beautiful. Neighborhoods were all intact. Greenery, 30 kids running up and down the block, you know, riding our bikes and whatnot. And then they started to close the steel mills, and then they started to close the auto industry, and the tool and die and everything suffered, you know. And then, for whatever reason, crack cocaine entered into those urban environments, and those neighborhoods deteriorated, you know. But when I was a kid, those neighborhoods were gorgeous. It's still gorgeous, you know. Is your family still there? Yeah. Yeah. My dad passed away seven years ago. My mom is still there. How's she doing? She's doing great. Is she affected by the whole water thing? She is not affected by the water thing. Detroit actually has really good water. Flint has terrible water. No, I know. (laughs) But Detroit, our water is filtered. Our water is, the only problem with Detroit is the water is chlorinated, you know, and uh, they put fluoride in it. What is the intention behind that? As far as I know, fluoride is a waste product that they had to figure out what to do with. And they lied and said, this is good for your shit. But it is good for your teeth. It's great for your teeth. Is it? Dude, Detroiters have great teeth. 
Yeah. I, I've had, that would be an interesting I've had study. one cavity my whole life. Huh. You and me both. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that, that has nothing to do with genetics? You think Some that's because of, of the water? But I really do believe that Detroiters have great teeth. Now, we may all be, you know, like two or three <laughs> you know, IQ points down, you know, having been fed, you know, all this fluoride, but... Yeah, but you got great smiles. <laughs> you got great teeth. But you look good. <laughs> Isn't that what Fernando used to say? It's better to look good than to it feel, feel good. good. exactly. Man, I think fluoride is a waste product that they've sold to people, you know, to get rid of it. Bottom line. Waste from what? You know, you have a computer right there. Is she looking at I will. So we're just looking at what is fluoride? Yeah. The fluoride used to fortify our water supplies is a byproduct of phosphate rock processed for other purposes. It's still a natural thing. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they made this shit out of some other shit and then they put that shit in the water just to get rid of it. No, but they sold it to municipalities to put into the water. So they went and they processed all of this phosphorus, you know, for fertilizer. It's like, oh, we got all this fluoride and there's nothing wrong with it. Like, oh, well, you know. But what it's would inspire teeth. someone to like think that they could just add it as, as some kind of a, a thing? <laughs> That's a really good question. That's so weird, dude. Okay, here you go. <laughs> this is probably, this is propagandist. But uh, the way it states it here, the phosphate mining industry discovered an alternative to paying billions of dollars to dispose of the highly toxic uh, hydrofluosilicic acid industrial waste product. Oh, so, they so were it's paying, industrial waste. Yeah, from, from phosphate production. Right. Huh. How many people you think out of 10 know that? I don't know. Zero? Well, now you know. Zero and a half? <laughs> One? <laughs> no Because I'm only half a man. I, I mean, no with idea. you, now a man and a but half. But I think that a lot of people know, especially here in Hippie Dippy, Ashland. I think a lot of people don't. My lady, you know, who's not from Ashland, does not have fluoride in uh, her toothpaste and stuff like that. She refuses. I don't either. I now only you know have why. one cavity. Yeah. Now you know why. It's well, but I was raised with fluoride. Yeah. Oh, that's why. But now, yeah. But now you know why. Yeah. It does work. You know. I guess. It guarantee. Yes. Oh, it's guaranteed to work. It is. Yeah. But it. You know. See, I thought it was bullshit. Fluoride. Yeah. No, it works. Okay. I believe you. I mean, <laughs> you made quite a case. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I want to see if you're getting some payola from these fluoride oh, motherfuckers. I wish. So you've been in this town since 1990... 96. 96. And uh, did you come here specifically to see about... The festival, yeah. That's yeah. the reason I'm here. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, now the reason I'm here is like the festival and my children. You know, my family's here, but yeah. And where are they now? My 22-year-old is sitting at my house right, right now. Okay. Uh, she's getting ready to go back to New Orleans to uh, begin her degree in teaching, which is very nice. Cool. Uh, my eldest lives in, in Michigan. And my two younger, you know, are right here in Ashland. Are you a single dad? I don't know that I'm a single dad. I have a partner, you know, but... Okay. Yeah. So what's it like being in this town, being a dad, and having to work every day but one day? You're just off on Monday, right? Yeah, it's hard, which I'm devoting to you. <laughs> and I really appreciate it. I, no, I, no, 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 I do. And I know that you guys have limited free time. I wish you all could see the look on his face when I yeah, say it to him. <laughs> he just drops his head. It's a hangdog look. It is really hard to be in this town as a performer, getting up 730 in the morning with my children, getting make sure they make it off to school, turning around. Maybe, maybe I'll catch a nap. I get up and I run off to do maybe some recording at the uh, Blackstone Audio. Then I turn around and go to a uh, noon rehearsal. I come back home, I feed my family, and I run off to do my play, you know, in the evening at 11 o'clock. I'm out, you know, I'm done. But you it's love your day. life, right? Yeah, dude, my life is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> my life is beautiful. You know, I wouldn't trade what I have for anything. Okay. No, I agree. I mean, you yeah. do have 
everything, right? You got healthy I, kids. Exactly. You got a brilliant job. Yeah. Doing what you love yeah. in a very nice community. Yeah. What is it like being in such a white box of fucking Tic Tacs community? It used to be tougher. When I first got here, there were skinheads that used to hang out in town. And I remember getting into it with them over at the boat club. I mean, like literally, we used to physically fight. That kind of tampered and it was gone after a while. I don't know where they went. They obviously didn't go very far. Well, they were in Phoenix and they literally were opening an office. I remember it was in the news front page. Um, that they wanted to open themselves a little business office in Phoenix, and they were going to grant them permission to actually do this. And people from Ashland went to Phoenix yep. and stopped it. Because they were causing you know so many problems over here in Ashland. They were raising hell. Like, literally, we were physically fighting with these guys. So That's crazy. In the 90s, dude. Yeah. This ain't the fucking 50s and 60s. It, it's, this it, it, this never, last week. That never went anywhere, man. I mean, why are people so shocked? <laughs> I just don't know why people are so incredibly shocked that racist assholes are still around. Say, this ain't the 50s and 60s. Okay, think about this. Those guys in the 50s and 60s who hated black people, forced to accept integration, had kids. Sure. Those kids, you can see them in those photos of people being lynched. Little girl standing right there. That little girl, probably 70 years old right now. She's 70 years old, and she saw a man lynched. Think about that. All those people that were standing at that counter... That lunch counter, berating that poor black woman and black man, sitting there dumping milkshakes on their heads. Those kids who are young, 18, 19, like, you know, my youngers. Those people are still alive. And they had kids. So those people produced more kids, and they passed some of those racist tenants on. So why are we so shocked, you know, to run into racist people now? I never understand that. Like, why we're baffled that all of a sudden this is what's happening. Those people are still around. Police because forces are, you know, still keeping people in line all this time. Why we are so shocked, you know, as better yet, as pink people, why you all are so shocked yeah. that black people are being targeted by the police. You know, it's purposeful. And you can't even explain this to people. They refuse to understand. They refuse to understand because that makes them implicit. You know, the idea that for every law that got changed, they made a law to undercut it. Perfect example. You know, 1860s. Black people had the right to vote, had the right to vote, had the right to assemble. We had black senators, you know, statesmen. There was talk of a guy being vice president as a black male. All of that was taken away through Reconstruction, Jim Crow. So we had to go back in the 1960s to get 75% of what we had in the 1860s. Isn't that absurd? But we had it. The 13th Amendment, during the 13th Amendment, the prison population was like 3% black. After the 13th Amendment, where you could legally put somebody in prison, and worked them as a slave, prison population exploded with black people. They made loitering laws. Cast spit on the sidewalk. Silly stuff to put you in jail. And people refused to understand that it was purposeful. Do they teach that in school? No, of course not. They well, teach it taught in my school. But that's what I'm saying. How do my children know if they don't know? How can you know what you, you tell don't them. know? You tell them. What if I don't know? How am I going to tell what I don't okay, know? The, uh, well, here's a perfect way, way to do that. When someone says something to you that challenges you, look it up. Right. Go to the Library of Congress, you know. Go to National Geographic. Go to places where, you know, you can have an aggregate of information and sift through it and figure it out. People are too fucking lazy. It's too lazy to do it. How about this? How about you just take somebody's word for it? You well, know, I am right now. Oh, like, oh, if a woman says, I don't feel safe walking up the street at 1030 at night, even in little quiet, quaint Ashland, because people, you know, are predators. Yeah. And somebody will jump out and attack me. And then I'll go to the police and they won't believe me. We believe that. 
It's true. Women get raped all the time. Women yeah. get assaulted all the time. You know, so we should be doing everything in our power to stop that person from being assaulted, right. to stop that person from being a victim. Yeah. Why don't we believe it when, you know, when black folks say it? I don't know. Why is that? What because, is the... because that makes you implicit. You know, it makes any and everybody in this society implicit or complicit with the idea that black folk are oppressed. Well, can't we just say, okay, we've fucked up for so long. Can't so, we but just... What, what are you going to do about it? What should we do about what, it? Okay, I'll give you a perfect example of what we should do about it. You should go through those urban environments where people are shooting themselves at like unprecedented rates. And you should put in streetlights. You should put in job work initiatives. You should beautify those neighborhoods. You should pump some money into their educational funds. You should take the lead out of their water. They go a long way towards saying, we want to make this right. Why don't we do that? <laughs> you, you tell me. It seems like a reasonable Dude. recourse to just correct yeah, but things. You know, because the prison industrial complex bets on those people. Anytime you make prison a private industry and you guarantee, the states guarantee that prisons have an 80% capacity, you're not trying to rehabilitate people. No. You're trying to keep those prison cells full. You pay sixty to $80,000 to keep a prisoner in California. If you gave that dude $40,000, half of what it costs to house him, he wouldn't be in fucking prison. No, he wouldn't. He'd be a productive citizen. How about that? How about that? So what is the percentage of human beings that need to get together and go, all right, why don't we start doing the right thing? We could all do it now. We could all do it now. What is stopping us? Dude, the fact that it, you would have to miss some time at work. The fact that you would have to allow these people to come into your neighborhood to work. The fact that you would have to, you know, uh, make sure that these neighborhoods got funding that your neighborhood won't. You know, it's your cash. Why it's don't we cash. even have ethnic diversity in our own fucking town here? <laughs> really, seriously. It is prohibitive. Yeah, Oregon, you couldn't even be in Oregon. You couldn't stay in Oregon. When the Wild West, you know, which was not wild, it belonged to somebody who was very carefully cultivating it and very carefully tending it. But when the Wild West, you know, was settled by these, you know, interlopers, you as a, an African-American could not come here and get land. The U.S. government was giving away millions of acres of native land. So if you wanted to homestead... 40 acres and a mule. Well, that was ours. That's what they offered us, and that was in Florida, and you can't get that either. You know how many trillions of dollars that'd be worth right now? How many oh, trillions of dollars that would be? Ridiculous. Think about the fact that 3.1 million slaves, and let's say 45% of them were African-American males, and it's 40 acres and a mule for all of them. Think about that. Yeah, no, that's a big number. Yeah, exactly. You, you will never be able to pay that back. But reparations is another conversation. But think about the fact that you could not be here in the 1860s. You could not stay in Ashland in 1960 as a black male. There's a sundown law. That's 1960, man. There was a curfew here? Yes. Sundown laws. Yeah. You have all of these African Americans trying to make their way into the West. Not welcome. They all they go up to Washington. Not welcome. So you got a bunch of them in B.C. How about that? They all went to B.C. So you got a huge African Canadian population in Vancouver. I had no idea. Yeah. See, school's not teaching us anything no, about man, this no. stuff. In fact, McGraw-Hill or whatever the text publisher, yeah. these guys have been facing suits from angry parents, and rightfully so, trying to change the way they present the slaughter and treatment of the Native Americans. They said that they willingly moved, you know, to different parts of the world or of the United States. For, versus being evicted? Yes. Yeah. They called slaves immigrants. In one of their books. I shit you wow. not. Dude, you can look it up. You can look it up. They're changing the narrative. Because if you can rewrite history, then you have all of these people, all of these people who will grow up believing that. That's why we have so many issues in the South. You, the South, lost. 
own it. You decided that you want to secede. You lost. Own it. Right. But they didn't want to do that. Those women, those Southern women, and you know the Confederacy, they began to go to people and rewrite the narrative of the South. All of these monuments and stuff that they're tearing down now, those came after Reconstruction. Those came after Jim Crow. It was a, a very purposeful tactic of theirs to rewrite, literally, physically rewrite the history in textbooks. And so you got all these Southern people who consider the fact that, oh, the uh, Civil War was not about slavery. It was about, you know, states' rights. That's a narrative, but that's false. Right. It's blatantly false. But they have believed that because since the 1860s, they've been taught that in their schools. Well, we were told that marijuana makes you crazy and wants exactly. to kill people. Exactly. And people still believe Propaganda. that. Propaganda. Yeah. But they've been taught that. So, I mean, I, I try to take it with a grain of salt when I hear some of these ignorant folk, you know, saying, well, this is the history. You know, like, you weren't this, you weren't that. And it's like, man, it was, a, it was a narrative that you were force-fed that's patently false. Think about that. Decades of programming, years of programming of this being, I learned from school, the people that I respect, my yeah. teachers, and I was tested, graded, yes. and it was ingrained in me yes. as truth. Now that I see the world as fucked up as it is, yeah. and I have this truth in me that doesn't seem to jive with what other people are saying, how do we get people the truth so they can actually weigh and be aware of what's really happening? I think the truth is, you know, relative. I think that we all have personal truths that are not based in facts. No, 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 of course. But true. what I'm saying to you is you have to change that word. Historically, these are the facts. You know, the fact that the South wanted to hold slaves, period. They wanted slaves. Right. They wanted to push slaves into the Western territories that were, you know, becoming property of the United States. And those folk fought to keep that alive and well. They knew they had a stranglehold on the cotton industry. They were exporting, you know, 40% of the world's cotton, beating out India, where you had really cheap labor. Here you have slave labor, you know, the slaves make. The North was processing all of this cotton. They were making a killing. But you had all of these tiny little insurrections happening all over the place. You know, you were constantly fighting to keep these slaves in line. So they did horrific things to them to keep them from revolting. But they were revolting more and more and more. And there were places where the density of, you know, slaves was higher than that of the people who held them. And so it became a, a powder keg. It was just waiting to go off. And then you had Lincoln. Here comes Lincoln, who everybody knows. He didn't believe in slavery. He believed black people should go back to Africa. So send them back to Africa and we don't have this problem. But the South was making money off of it. The North was making money off of it. The world was making money off of it. The banks, they would lend you money for your slaves. It's like it's collateral for property. a loan. Well, yeah. Women were property too. <laughs> Dude, That's know? what marriage was based on, yeah, wasn't so, it? Yeah, so think about that. Yeah, dowry, you came with all of this stuff. You right. know, you came with cash. So if you think about the idea that these people had nothing but a vested interest in holding on to something that was making them money. Not everybody had slaves, but let's say 25% of the people had slaves. They convinced enough people that it's our right to do as we please. And you're right. It's your right to do as you please. Was it legal? Absolutely it was legal. Absolutely. But you know what? Being a traitor is not legal. In the United States, they'll hang you for it. Yeah. You know? And anytime you decide you want to you know, make on your own country, they're not going to go for that. So they sent troops in there to say, no, you're not going to secede. Now you're going to give up your damn slaves. You know, a tactic. Not really what he wanted. Right. It was a tactic. But he had to leverage something exactly. to be able to do something. Exactly. And he knew if he did that, he knew if he did that, if he released all of those slaves, it would change the tide of the war. And it absolutely did. Right. Of course it did. 
But you think about the, the idea that these people have never really been held accountable. Once he was assassinated, it all swung back the other way. Right. You know, it was just different. It was just completely different. It was a different way to work people. That it was also the, the beginning of the idea of the white person. The idea that, oh, when you first got here, you're Irish. We don't like the Irish here. You first got here, oh, you're a Pole. We don't like the Pole here. You're German. You live over there. There was separatism amongst all these folk. The Scots, they came here and everybody was prejudiced against. Everyone. The Scots? Yeah, everybody. The English settled this country. The French settled this country. Those families have been here. And once you've been here for a while as a naturalized American, whatever that means, you don't want all these immigrants coming to your country just like they don't want them now. But before, it was very different. You were broken up by your nation of origin. But after a while, you came here and to keep you a poor Irishman, from banding together with this poor black man, African, we're going to make you white. We come up with the narrative, you know, that we're all whites. And they're all subjugated to us. They're all less than we are. So we'll pay you to watch them. We'll pay you to police them. You know, you had this whole influx of Irishmen into New York. During the Civil War, you get off the boat from Ireland. They hand you a draft card, they throw a uniform on you, and they send you to the front. You're going to fight. You just got here. You just got here. How do you feel about African Americans by the time you get here? You know, about six months into it, when you're shooting some guy you've never even met, you barely had time to put your feet on the ground. And now you're walking through mud and blood to kill for some Africans. There was a huge riot where these Irishmen, who got tired of being drafted to go and fight in the Civil War, went and killed a couple dozen black people through the streets of New York. And then they turn around and they become the policemen. So think about that. You know what I'm saying? Think about that. I wouldn't even know how to explain to my children how to wrap their head around such information that doesn't even come near their purview. They don't know anything. So how can they do anything about something they don't know anything about? The information is out there. Yeah, but typically speaking... They already hate school to begin with. Yes. They're not looking for more information. They're looking for less information. Yes. And none of this that you're speaking of, which I knew almost nothing about, raised as a white person in Southern California in a mostly black and Latino school, which never conveyed any of this information because it's not part of a curriculum in history or English or anything. But it becomes part of the narrative of the United States. What you just said, raised as a white person, you know, here, and having nothing to, uh, been told nothing about the black experience or the Latino experience. So it's interesting. Why are they not brown people? You're white, I'm black, but we automatically go to Latin for them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I think I have with like the white black conversation. I've never met a white person in my life. Not ever. I've met pink people. A bunch of tan people, you know, some ivory people. But I've never met a white person in my life. But the idea that we have this whole, the truth of race is it's absurd. White, you know, purity, angelic, godlike. And you got black, fear, like of light. You know, just that, that simple thing right there is enough to keep that narrative going. You know what I mean? So how do we get rid of labels? We're just people. Okay, how about African-American? You know, how about European-American? How about Irish-American? It's funny, you know, every St. Patty's Day, I'm an Irish-American, you know, right. until I'm a white person. <laughs> yeah, and you don't hear European-American. No. You don't hear people talking like that. No. They do say African-American or yeah. Latin-American or something American. Yeah, but then we're all white. 
That's right. Yeah. That's what seems to be the differentiator. Yeah. Is we're here and everybody else, you're from someplace yeah. else. And that's we're very... We're all from someplace that's else. That's a purposeful truth. Do you see? That's I a do. truth. But it's not a fact. The fact is, we're all from someplace else, like you just said. We're all immigrants. Yeah. All of us. And not only that, I have a great issue with people saying, well, if you don't like it, go back to your country. It's like, how about this? If you haven't been here... Since my people landed in this place as slaves, if you came after me, aren't you going to fucking back to your country? Right. How about that? I have more right to the United States than you do. The Native Americans have more right to this place than you do. You go back to your country. You go and you set Europe on fire. Okay? But here, now the time has come where you got to pay the piper, man. you got to pay the piper. You cannot tax people because this is taxation without representation. Let's, let's go back to that. We love the Boston Tea Party. We love that idea. No taxation without representation. You got all these brothers stuck in Chicago, paying taxes, to the police officers who come and beat them, shoot them, take them to jail, who are allowing drugs to be pumped into their environment. You're paying your taxes to be protected and getting none of the benefits of those taxes as African Americans because you're redlined. You're redlined. You couldn't move out of these neighborhoods, period. You could not move out of this neighborhood. You were stuck. Is that because, what happened in Oakland? Dude, that's what happened everywhere. I mean, is that why the Panther Party started? Was to protect yeah, their people? To from... protect their folk. But people don't think that, you know? Well, what do they That's think? a fact. The narrative is, these are black people who hate white people. That's why they're walking around with guns. They're dangerous. Really? That's what they thought? Yes, they hate white people. Yeah, some of them did hate white people. You know, probably justly, well, they justly so. They were exactly. trying to kill their brothers and Exactly, sisters. but they weren't trying to kill you. What they were trying to do was take care of their own neighborhoods, keep the police from shooting their citizens, right. ultimately banding together to feed their young people to educate their young people, they were working on their own society, on their own environment. And then the government launched COINTELPRO and went through and killed all those folks. You know, come on, man. You want a gun legislation? The NRA worked with the California state government to make gun legislation. You couldn't open carry because the Black Panthers were open carrying. How about that? NRA working against black people. I can tell you right now, if every brother who's listening to my voice went out and bought an AR-15 right now, right now, it's only 600 bucks. We would have gun legislation like you would not believe. Like you would not that believe. That is a fact. Yeah. That is a fact. And that's not happening? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious if I walked into an, you know, a gun show, if they would sell me one. Well, if you had ID. Yeah, that's all you need. But you had all of these black guys try to register in Chicago for concealed weapons permits because of the dangerous environment. And the article I read was actually about a guy who was a vet who used firearms for six years. And he got denied a concealed carry permit. He's African-American. But they don't have to tell you why. But you had hundreds... They don't have to tell you why? Why you were denied, no. Hundreds of guys denied, all African-American. All of them. Including that vet. Hundreds. You know? But I'm telling you right now, if every black male who's listening to my voice would go out and buy an AR-15, they would be illegal by next week. Of course, because that's considered a threat. Yeah. That means you're gaming up. Yeah, exactly. And when was the last time you heard about a brother going out and never, shooting up a school? Never, never, never. Thank you. Never, never all Caucasian motherfuckers <laughs> killing each other. Yeah. And your kids. Yeah. And they still won't make it illegal to have an AR-15. That's insane. And my son argues for that amendment. That he says we have a right to bear arms. 14. In a well-trained militia. And the guys who are in well-trained militia... You know, some of the guys who went out and took over the Federal Reserve in Burns, Oregon. How about that? Took a Federal Reserve, the Bundy brothers, <laughs> for how many weeks? 
Several. And one guy died. One guy died. And that's because he actually drew on the officers. That's practically a peaceful protest. Thank you. They tore it up. Millions of dollars in damage. Decided they wanted to mine it. And were very vocal about it. And not only that, that was the second time that the Bundy brothers or their friends, their militia, had a standoff with the police. And nobody went to prison. Nobody. How can that be? You, you tell me. I do plead ignorance. And, you know, I'm not an idiot, but I am ignorant. Yeah. I know I am because I'm sitting listening to you now. 80% of what you say, I had no, I don't know anything about. The information is out there looking at No, no, no. Now I can. Yeah, but this is the second time that the Bundy brothers or their friends, you know, had an interaction, armed interaction with federal officers and state officers. Nobody got shot. Dude, if it was African Americans, there was nobody left. Dude, they, they would have dropped a bomb. bomb. They, they would have had jets fucking Thank you. shooting shit at it. They've already done it. They'll let you know. You know, they've already done it. Come on, man. Yeah. I mean, in the scheme of the universe, we're looking at a pretty tiny window of our human development on <laughs> yeah. some level, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a blink of an eye. Yeah. So if it's taken us this long to even get to this point of ignorance, how fucking long, mathematically, is it going to take us to figure out that this is all ridiculous and that we need to actually look at facts? Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I think that it's going to happen when all those people living on the coast and those beautiful coastal communities, because, I mean, it's a perfect window of time for humans to exist on this planet, when they're moved inland because the rising of the sea, when fresh water is almost impossible to find without purification, when you're all eating grubs and uh, the genetically engineered soybean after you have to avoid hot spots of cities because of nuclear waste and all this other stuff, maybe then, and even then it'll break into tribalism. We're doomed. We need to be humbled. Yeah, we're doomed. But is the humbling <laughs> even going to convince us that we need all our brothers and sisters? I think that we're getting to a place where we're doing it now. But it it's too much money, man. There's too much money in strife and warfare you know, and oppression. There's too much money in it. You know, the bulk of our money goes into the military machine. Of course. You say, of course, but why is that? We just say, of course, and we accept it. Why? why do oh, we I don't, I, 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 yeah, but I mean, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, it's not a bad thing that you said it, but what I'm saying is like, we need to stop thinking about it like that. We have to, we got to challenge ourselves. It's like, of course, and that's not right. And I'm going to do something about it. Right. But I, I pay my taxes. Of course, they're going to take it. They're going to put it into, you know, another million dollar missile. They're going to drop on somebody, you know? It just, it's a matter of, of recourse. You know, just, it happens. That's what goes on. You give it to the military machine. Why? Why? Why are we feeding Halliburton's military machine? Why are we still trying to hire one person to represent 350 million different kinds of people? That is never going to change. That's never going to change. You don't think so? No. You think politics are going to remain the same? Yeah. How can it? It doesn't even seem like it's sustainable. Even what we see now, it seems like we've gotten to the biggest joke in the world, and it's up to us to decide if, if this is how we Dude, continue. It, it would be so much worse if you were actually smart. If you were actually smart. I think you should be more afraid not of him or what he's doing. I'm not worried Or even him. Pence, you know. You should be afraid of the guy who comes after him. That's the dude to watch. Well, this is a setup, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Well, wasn't Obama set up too? I don't know. It, it seems like he had eight years of actually trying to do something, and they just wouldn't let him. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what they were trying to set up. All I know is that Obama gave trillions of dollars to the banks, just like George Bush gave trillions of dollars to well, the banks. Well, that's bank. what I'm saying. I think it was a brilliant move, but I do see that it's the wolf in sheep's clothing, and they're all working for the same people. Yep. And... 
they reintroduce different people to yep. kind of throw us off our game and give us false hope. Yep. Like, yes, we can. Yep. How about yes, we will? Yep. Of course we can. Yeah. Everybody knows we can. But we won't. You know, why don't we? Well, we, that's we what wh why don't we? Because it's the age of the 99-cent cheeseburger, man. You're so content that you're not going to do anything. You have a beautiful place. Why would you go out and revolt? You know? You have clean water. Because I love my children and yeah. I want them to have a better world. Exactly. You know, and but, that's the only reason. Yes, but there are people who don't have the time to go out and revolt. Those people who say, well, why don't they go out and do something? Why don't they? Why don't they? Why, why don't they? they? Who's they? What exactly. About you? Us. Exactly. Exactly. My son stands here. We're watching protests out in the street about the gun regulations. And uh, he said, why are they doing that? I said, because we have to do that. Yes. Because if we don't, nobody will. Exactly. And the status quo stays the same. Exactly. You cannot look and watch other people and have them do your work for exactly. you. Exactly, because it's our work. It's everybody's fucking job. But they're selling division, man. They're selling you division. The fact that I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm an Independent, that infighting... All these bullshit it's labels. Like, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Why are you, Again, even, the white why black are you is even black? Exactly. That's what I said. I, that's my question. You're just another but, but, human being. Yeah, but don't get me wrong, man. It's like, ultimately, like, I am a different color. You know, I recognize that. And not only that, the color that I am has been maligned for hundreds of years. And it's a universal thing. Every place I've gone... In the world? In the world. Because I was going to ask you about the European take. In the world. In the world. But you know what? Everybody had a part in slavery. So where'd I go? I went to Holland. I went the to Holland. The whitest place on the planet, One probably. of them, yeah. One of them. And absolutely beautiful country. And they treated me like I was Suriname. Not like I was African-American, like I was Suriname. Because Suriname was, you know, a colony of Hollands. So those Surinamese can actually go to Holland. And they're citizens. Amongst them, unemployment's like 35%. Wow, dude. That's super high. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> because they're Suriname. They're from Suriname. The bottom line is, they treated me like I was a nigga in their country, too. Seriously. That's so crazy. I thought some of the European no. uh, mentality was a little no. more sophisticated. No. It's not. No. You know, so black England, everywhere is a problem. Uh, well, I think black everywhere is a problem because they've been sold the narrative that blacks are inferior, or blacks are this, or blacks are, you know, dangerous, or blacks, are, you know, it's all bullshit. Well, of course it is. You know, but you, how do you change people's minds? But now you have all of these immigrants are running from war-torn countries, which is another byproduct of slavery, another byproduct of them having mineral reserves, right. oil, all of these things, and people coming into their countries like Leopold, now the Chinese. I mean, you have all this history of the raping of the continent of Africa and these people constantly being in strife, constantly being in these wars with each other and Europeans, and now they got no place to go. They got no place to go. And this is how it all started. Exactly. It's just war, man. It's again and again and again. You cannot get away from the idea that all the problems we have on this planet are self-made. I don't know that tribalism is ever going to go away. I don't even know that tribalism is a bad thing. You know? Is it? No, it's like I'm an Ashlander now, as far as I'm concerned. But I'm also a Detroiter. You know what I mean? Right. So that's my tribe. This is my town. I'll protect this town. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Who are you protecting? Exactly. Besides your family. Exactly. Who are the people that you think are your community? Exactly. But you're my community. Yes. You're my friend. And if something bad happens to you, I want to help defend you. You know? How do we do that peacefully? How do we do that so that everybody else Well, but else you know what? It? When there's an emergency, number one, we forget things. Yeah. Very quickly. Yeah. There's an emergency that happens and we band together. Yes. All of a sudden, everything's blurred. There is no identity. There's no color. When there's an emergency, everybody grabs hands. Yeah. And it's really quite beautiful when something happens. Yeah. And I feel that that's what will happen monetarily, too, is there's going to be potentially some kind of humbling event that no matter of money is going to save you. 
And when there's no matter of money that can save you, Soylent Green, then all of a sudden there's a different kind of community that arises from this because we need each other. And maybe, just like I talk about Crater Lake, was this violent, horrific eruption of nature that turned into something spectacular and beautiful. Maybe we're a representation of that at some point where something super violent globally happens, whether it's nature-induced or us-induced, that humbles us back to a place of square one zero. We're all just here together, and we got to figure out how to make it work together without any identifiers, no labeling, nothing. We're just people here who have to survive something that was really bad. On some really weird level, I wish for it. I want us to suffer together so we can come back together. I think we could do it without suffering. I don't understand like what is so what's so wrong with us trying to figure it out now when we understand that these labels are absolutely absurd. Because of what you just said, because grandparents have children and those people have that same fucking mentality and they pass it down generationally and it's a very slow change. And if you think that is a fact, if you think those stories are truth, you're going to teach those to your children and you're going to champion that ignorance. But it's not just them teaching that to their children. It's also what their children see, you know, in media. Like all you ever see is black folk being arrested. All you ever see black folk committing crime, you know, or being jumped on by the police. We just have to be mindful of the narrative. You never see the vast majority of the African-American population in the United States who are just living life and talking to folk, you know, and having podcasts drinking their coffee, you know, talking on their phones, going it's to It's not work. shown. You, you never see it. You only see the bad side. Or you see them as multimillionaires. So you're playing basketball foot, yeah, players, yeah, exactly. they're high-paid musicians or exactly. athletes. Exactly. Or they're killing each other. Exactly. There's nobody in between. Nobody. There's no middle class. Yeah. But I don't even think people go that far to think about it. They just don't see it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, see, you have the potential to make it just like Jay-Z. You can make a billion dollars. You can't make a billion dollars. You know what I'm saying? And you're a white guy. Is that what I'm saying? Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. So the idea that all of a sudden everybody can do it is absurd. But if you only see the vast, I mean, the just huge extremes, you're being misled. Well, that's intentional. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that's the thing. It's all all you ever see. So we have to deal with all of the ways that we're being, you know, force-fed bullshit. We have to deal with that. So how do we show the facts? TV shows that actually go out and talk to people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right. You know, how about that? My son's hero. Yeah, you talk to me. You know, I'm just yeah. an average Joe walking through Ashland. Right. Just regular, normal folk. You look at material on TV, on the internet, that actually shows regular, normal African-Americans going about their lives just like regular, normal European-Americans. Just like regular, normal Mexican-Americans. You mean like you the know? Cosby Show? Yeah, well, oh, Bill. <laughs> Bill, Bill, Bill. Like the Cosby Show. Yeah. Hey, there's more Jews than blacks going down for sexual deviance. Well, uh, when they start throwing those Jews in jail for the same thing, yeah, then we'll we'll be See, on even ground. You th- should be thrown in jail. I mean, if he was roofing people, and he was, didn't you hear? He's getting three counts of ten years apiece. Yeah, he's eighty years old. He's eighty. You know yeah. what? If, oh, well, he's probably going to pay someone to take him out. I would imagine he is not going to spend a fucking day in jail at eighty know. years old. I don't know. You think that man's going to go to jail? I don't know, man. You got the DuPont heir who raped his own kids, raped his own children. Who's this dude? Uh, what is his name? DuPont. I can't remember. He's one of the their damn He heirs. raped his children? Yeah, he sexually molested his children. Yeah, look it up. No, I'm not and looking it up. He didn't go to prison. I'm not saying, well, Bill Cosby shouldn't go to prison. I'm saying the no, DuPont guy should go to prison. There needs to be accountability across the board. Accountability? Like when you have a legal defense called affluenza, like the kid who went... 
killed those folk, then broke his probation and went running off to some other country, Mexico or something. Mama hit him away. They finally dragged him back and put him in jail. Finally. Dude, he plowed if these people didn't know what he was doing because he's too rich. He's too rich to go to jail. You know, how about the kid who raped the woman behind the damn trash can and yet these two decent foreigners grab him, hold him for the police while he's raping this unconscious woman, gets put into jail. The judge commutes his sentence to something smaller and he doesn't serve but three months. Come on, man. If you don't see it again and again and again and again in society that it is disproportionately built for you and that is the absolute definition of privilege, yeah. you're delusional. You're delusional. Come on, man. Prison wouldn't be good for him. He's a student. You know, he's got a bright life. It's not supposed to be he's good for you. He's got a bright future. Yeah. Yeah. It's not supposed to be good for no, you. No, it's punishment. Thank you. You should be punished. And they don't punish pink folk. They don't. You don't get punished the same way we get punished. Dude, in Mississippi, Alabama, they've been doing studies. Southern Poverty Center has actually been doing a study following judges and how they lay out sentences, both for African Americans and for European Americans. And they have found the same judge having like completely different sentencing guidelines for two different types of folk. So if you come in there as an African-American, you're probably guaranteed 20% more time. How the same you, judge. I know, but it, where's the oversight? How can that even be possible? The, the, we're the oversight. You elected that judge. We have judges getting ready to come up for election right now. I got my ballot. You know, go and look at what, how they tried their cases. Go and look at who they were defending. Go and look at who they were prosecuting. And you can tell exactly what they're going to do when they become judges. Well, I haven't been part of the voting system since I was 19 years oh, old. Oh, brother. I'm going to say this once. Intentionally. Once and only, only once. That's fine. Shame. Really? Shame, shame, shame. Absolutely. Why? It may be a trick. It may be a device that they use to keep us all in line. But it's your voice. But isn't my voice my choice, whether I scream it one way or another? Yes. If I don't want to participate in something that I feel is broken and never going to work in the way that we needed to, that I'd rather have everybody stop voting and break this shit up and do something that's reasonable instead of going back to the same fucking poison well that does the same repeated behavior every time with the same result? That's Einstein's theory of insanity. Why would Which I keep doing that? <laughs> what? Which I don't think Einstein said that. It's attributed to him, but I don't think he said that. Regardless. Well, yeah, I understand what you mean. But But the relativity of the experiment is (laughs) when you keep doing the same thing over again, expecting a different result. Yes, but I think that unless you're doing something to counter those other voices. But that's fine. I get that. And, And I'm willing to do anything other than what we are doing that is doing nothing more than it's ever done ever okay. since its inception. Okay, fair they enough. wrote the Declaration of Independence because they knew this shit was going to be fucked up and they told us, as soon as you see it fucked up, you need Change to tear it. it down and do something that's right. They knew from the beginning this is only a temporary solution. People need to learn to self-govern. You need to teach your children how to think and not what to think so they can go figure out the fucking truth and the facts for themselves. And as long as we're in this cycle of what we tell you and how to do it is how it should be done, and we keep going back to that same poison well, we're going to get the same fucking result. And when I was 19 years old, I knew this. And I decided I couldn't participate, that I was going to live in my own integrity, make my own friends, support my own people and do it my way. And if not, I'm not going to do anything at all, which is still the neutral zone. It's kind of like do no harm. If you're not going to do any good, 
don't do anything, I'll be happy with that, which means you're not inflicting any more pain. But if you are seeing your fellow citizens being brutalized... Then I am there personally for them. That I stand with them. But those things already exist in the policy. So if you don't vote on initiatives to get rid of prisons, if you don't vote on initiatives for urban renewal, if you don't vote on initiatives for universal health care, if you don't vote for those things, how do they become a reality? Because I can do things on my own, in my community, with my friends and family, way more effectively than getting involved with a gigantic fucked up machine. Yeah. If but, I do but, my but, but little part... the machine part, also works on a local level. So I say we need to start there on the local level. Whatever the puppet is, you know, that's going to be in the White House, you know, next time... Is just a puppet. There's so much rampant corruption in a system that is supposed to be there to help us live a better quality of life, yep. which in fact is not the case. In, yep. If you just do your pros and cons and you put your good and your not so good or the people that are in it for the money versus the people that are in it for the people, it is so out of whack that my contribution or my opinion about somebody that I don't really know the full truth about anyway, mm -hmm. the person I vote for that I think is going to do the right thing mm -hmm. because they put on a good fucking show to convince me that I'm the man for you. Yep. I would much rather be in my community here and do things on a local level, which is buy from the co-op, have friends, build together, build things. Why are we supposed to be this forward-thinking town when we're not? We are the, actually the opposite of that. This is a selfish, shitty community on many levels yeah. that does not show up. Yeah. Well, that is a reflection of the entire system of not showing up. I want to show up for you. I want to show up for my kids and me going and putting my thing on a thing that typically these days is not even real anymore. It's not really going out to the real people. Things are thrown away. There's so much chaos and crime involved with it. I don't trust it. I never did trust it. It always seemed unreasonable to me. But I mean, I locally, you still have to do something. These are still the judges who represent how your child is going to either meet the system or be used by the system or not. These are still police officers who are going to be policing these neighborhoods. These are still the people you have to deal with on a regular basis. Right. And I'm saying that if you take just a local initiative to vote, to put particular people into office, or get behind a candidate that you really do believe in. Like, yeah, maybe the rest of the, the city won't say yes, but you have to vote on those people who directly affect your lives every day. Every day. Vote locally, you know? I understand your, your reasons are all right. You're right. It's the machine. Why people resist paper ballots or mail-in ballots, I will never understand. All you need is a pencil or a pen. Sign your damn name. They call me. We noticed you didn't vote. Call me. I've had people call me saying, you're not voting. So somebody must care. But to have a, a mail-in ballot for everybody to be represented, to say this is what our voice is, you know, to not be worked by the politics of it. It's like it's local governance and care. You know what I mean? Those things. I, I'm not chastising you for not no, voting. No, but, not. You know, I'm just saying you, you can make a difference locally. And that's school commissioners. Those things are important. You know, you want to know why the quality of, you know, education is going down? Well, who, who got in? Betsy DeVos, you know, runs Parliament Education. And this woman is notoriously wealthy and shifting it because she happens to own charter schools. Right. She can't be there. Martin Luther King said it the best. This was not about voting. He said, you need to be organized. Yes. You need to get groups of people that are like-minded 
and demand change. Yes. And that is not going to come through voting. It's going to come through people actually going out in the street. Agreed. And taking action. Agreed. Like my son is looking out there going, that's not doing anything. And that perception of him thinking it's not doing anything is what needs to change. He needs to become active. Yep. He needs to think that there's power in his own voice going around the machine. Agreed. By creating his own machine. By making him the machine. And again, if you're not getting the results you want, and it seems to be pretty repetitive, that they get to do whatever they want, and it's a game of psychology that they keep enticing us that there's hope, there's hope, there's chance. It's a lie. It's been a lie since the beginning. I'm not going to perpetuate a lie. I would much rather sit and talk to my children about the truth that I think is the truth, about the facts, about the fact that they can actually convince their friends if they are compelling enough. My son actually, it's so interesting, he wanted to be an astrophysicist because of who you mentioned. Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's right. He was so blown away by that man because he's such a brilliant man. Yeah. And not only is he a brilliant man, he's such a real human yeah, being. He's, he's so sweet. Yeah, he's absolutely he's such a nice guy. He's just a nice guy yeah. who made well. You know he supports GMOs, though. I did not know that. He does. He's got a really, really valid point. Well, of course, he wouldn't do anything that's not thought out. I don't know about that. You know, he probably does mere well, I don't mean about his, shit all the time. We I'm, just don't I'm know. I'm saying <laughs> you would think publicly that yes. he would not present himself yes. on a measure that he would not have thought out. Because yes. he doesn't want to look like a fucking idiot. Uh, yeah. And there are lots of scientists that actually believe in genetically modified food. Lots. I think they're just only thinking about numbers. How are we going to feed all these motherfuckers? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the bottom line. How yeah. are we going to feed all these absolutely. people? Absolutely. But that's not the answer, in my opinion. I think that genetically modified food is, it has the potential to really save. You know what? We are in the infancy stages of all our technology. Yes. We're like babies with fucking machine guns, dude. <laughs> it's true. We are. It's true. And as soon as we become emotionally mature, which is part of the educational downfall, when we teach people, again, how to think and not what to what think, to think. Yep. I guarantee that when you empower people to know how to leverage this organism, this beautiful thing we've been given, they will make far different decisions. Yep. And that, to me, is the bottom line, is it's an educational opportunity. If I don't know what to do, then I don't know what to do. How can I have expectation on another human being to think in a certain way when they don't even know how to think? Yep, agreed. And this, to me, supersedes everything. Prevention is the cure. To think for yourself and do the research. Discover the facts for yourself. What I want you to do is start with a clean mind that is going to work for you and not be influenced by information that's been imposed on you and makes you a victim of the system. You're a scientist. Everybody's a fucking scientist. Here's the experiment. If I do this and this, I'm going to get this result. If yeah. I have expectation, I'm going to be disappointed. But we reward those people. We reward scientists. We reward those people. But they should just be doing an act. Yeah, but they're not going to do an act. We say, oh, you're a really smart kid. Okay, come on over here. Come on. Okay, you, you, you know, little little Kevin, you stay over there. You know, you're not as smart as this kid over here. We're going we're gonna to separate well, that's you. That's more segregation. Exactly. And that, I'm saying to you that the great minds, the great thinkers end up going to better schools, end up getting the privileges of being great minds, great thinkers, and they buy them, and then they're lost to us. Okay, as long as we live in a system where money is more important than people, yes. we're fucked. Yes. And that's the end of that. Yes. As long as the money runs the show and people don't run the show, 
the show is over. It's the age of ninety nine cent cheeseburger, man. Right. I can get a cheeseburger and I, you know, and some water, and I can walk down the street, and I can wake up, and I go and have a beer. You know, I can do anything I want. We're not going. Think to. of that. The ninety nine cent cheeseburger. How many innocent, non ability to defend themselves speaking beings are slaughtered every fucking day so you can have a cheeseburger? It's true. How thoughtless is that? Forget even the whole us thing. <laughs> it's true. What what are we wiping out thoughtlessly with no intelligence around it at all? An entire industry that will actually fucking kill you or throw you in jail if you try to overturn that, yeah. which is my primary goal now. If we're eating, these are my cousins. <laughs> they have children. Yeah. They cry when they're, they're, they're being children. raped <laughs> so they can give milk to a species that has no business drinking the milk of another animal Agreed. and makes us sick. We're making ourselves sick. So how could we do any of this right? How could we make any good decisions yep. when fundamentally we are so fucking sick? Yep. We have to repopulate. We have to infiltrate the disease with healthy cells. Okay. And when you start infiltrating the disease with healthy cells, eventually, like Tolstoy said, 10% can convince 90%. So granted, like I said, we're looking at this tiny window of absolute atrocity and disgustingness. But I know that there's groups of human beings all over the world that know this, are having this conversation, and are not just having a conversation. They're creating new children. And those new children are going to create new children, and that's evolution. And again, we're looking at this tiny window of horribleness. But in 100 years, just like we look back 100 years ago, craziest shit that we did that we don't do anymore. I mean, we still are horrible. But we will, in a hundred years, if we're still here, we will absolutely be different. Because nothing can stay the same. It's impossible. I agree, but I think I'm less, you know, optimistic about it. I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful. I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. We fucking suck. We're pieces of shit. <laughs> but you know what? My children know what I know now. And I've given them those tools. But if their days were spent learning how to till the soil... Yeah learning how to find their own heart and their soul, learning how to connect with all their brothers and sisters, regardless of some perception of difference, which there is none. Once that begins to happen, it will all change. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful too. You know, I, I am. I really am. Like, I, that's my lesson to my kids. Do no harm and make the world a better place than you found it. I Constantly. Be okay, mindful, be so respectful. So there's two of us right here. Find the people that know that they want to participate in this way. And again, I think it's a mathematical equation that it's a numbers game. If it takes 10% of passionate people to convert 90%, then hopefully 10% of the world at some point will think along these lines about community. That the world is just one big community and we start taking care of each other and give us the information and the training, the, the necessary training that we need to be successful, and everything else should work out just fine. All right. I really appreciate <laughs> you spending uh, part of your only day off. It is Monday, right? It is Monday. It's your only day off. What else are you doing We've been today? talking long enough. It's probably Tuesday. Is it Tuesday? <laughs> I didn't even see the sun go up and down. See, I don't see color, man. I don't see black and white, baby. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate you coming in, man. I love you, man. I love you too, baby. A pleasure. Hey, Mark. Congratulations on number 44. Have a great show with Kevin and Gary, and I look forward to number 88. Thank you. Hey, Mark, it's Grant. Happy 44th. Ciao. To Kira Sirianni calling about that show, 44. 44 is my favorite number. 
Good work, Mark. You're doing good in this world. Just know that and just keep going. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was really great to have Kevin and Gary on show 44. I want to thank my family, my parents, my sister, my children, uh, their mother Val, all the guests on all the shows. Uh, I so appreciate that you spent time with me and were very candid and shared your lives with not only me, but whomever is listening to this show. There's more people to find out about. There's more things to learn. There's more people for me to be introduced to. There's more, there's just more. And I wanna do more and, and be more and offer more to you. So thank you once again for taking the time to listen to this presentation. Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg is a listener supported presentation and your generosity is greatly appreciated. In order to support me and uh, this project, all you need to do is simply go to aaronsberg.com. That's A-R-I-N-S-B-E-R-G.com. Go to the donate button on the Citizen 44 with Mark Aaronsberg podcast page. Or you can simply go to PayPal and uh, tip me generously at uh, my email address, mark at aaronsberg.com. Uh, I also want to thank... Uh, Gabby from Paris Green. Uh, I want to thank Paris Green for being our sponsor and my uh, my flow, as it were. And uh, all my friends and all my community and everybody, thank you all so much for giving me the space to do this and the patience and enabling me because I cannot do this without you and there would be no point to do this by myself. So thanks again, and I look forward to uh, many more shows. Word to your mother's uncle. That's for you, David, man. This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea. 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44. Hey, dude. What's happening, motherfucker? I'm on. I'm calling you from your new mic, and I'm actually standing freely standing in my apartment hands-free with this cool gear that you hooked me up with that'll be actually heard for the first time with my chat with Kevin Kennerly where we both have oh. our own mics and you will be able to hear us both super clean. Fantastic, baby. Thanks to you, Doug Fergus. Lucky Doug Fergus, Fergus, <laughs> Fergus. That's right. What's happening, baby? Yeah, for 44. How the heck could you ever imagine doing 44? Well, I didn't imagine any of it. I just imagined it as it unfolded. I just imagined it after I did it. Imagine that. And then just one after the other, and here you are. Isn't that it? Put one foot in front of the other. It's just like walking. You just 
start moving and then you keep the momentum going. And as long as you keep doing it, then it'll keep getting done. Yeah, yeah. You've been here since the get-go. What show were you, number 11? You know, it seems to me I'm 18. Okay, maybe you're number 18. Yeah, show number 18. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a very long time ago. Yes. How's your lovely bride, Suzanne Barraza, and all her stuff? Well, gosh, this weekend is the internationally famous Telluride Mountain Film Festival. Oh. And which she's the director of, and today, you know, it's a four-day festival. Today is the first day. Are you hobnobbing with any of the big celebs? Yes, she is, for sure. And then I'll be out and about accompanying her, being her arm candy. (laughs) And, um, yeah, already we have sightings of Tom Shadiak, the man who was the director of all the most successful Jim Carrey movies. And... And, and, and he also wrote, directed, created, produced a movie called I Am. Are you familiar with Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. The quick story for all your radio listeners (laughs) is that... It's not the radio. (laughs) (laughs) He made lots of money, as in like cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching to the millionth power with those Jim Carrey movies, but then he had a terrible accident on his bicycle, and he had a chance to reevaluate his life, and he just reduced, 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 way down, and now he just does socially relevant documentary. Well, I Am was a pretty profound gift that he gave human beings so they could see some things, and I took both my children to see it when they were about... I don't know, 10 and 12 or something like that. And uh, it, was, mm-hmm. it was a profoundly moving experience. And uh, I hope that everybody actually sees I Am. Pretty fantastic things about human beings and our potential and uh, what we're missing out on. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the big deal is the superficiality of the red carpet mentality in Hollywood and all that. You miss out on the the humans that are inside of all those shiny people. And when you see him on the street here in Telluride, he's just wearing baggy jeans and a T-shirt. You would never, ever know what else he's done with his life. He's so down to earth. And uh, he also has a, I think in Memphis or a city in that part of the country, I believe he has a, it's like either a school or a home for disadvantaged kids, I think. So he has a lot going on where he's, like, giving back. Oh, okay, here's a funny story for you, a true story. Uh, at the wrap of one of the big Jim Carrey comedies, Tom and Jim wanted to get the heck out of town, so they chartered an airplane in Alaska, a service, I should say, and they flew up to Anchorage, and they drove out to their the little airport, and they were just going to go out in the wilderness and spend a month to get away from people and Hollywood and the fast lane. And the airplane pilot said that there's a group of backpackers that have chartered him to do a food drop for them. So they have to stop first out in the middle of nowhere, drop the food, and then go take Tom and Jim to their site. And so the plane lands and there's a group of you know maybe just like five or six backpackers and Jim Carrey 
grabs the food bag and he marches out to them and said, Hi, I'm Jim Carrey. Here's your food. And he walked back to the plane and they took off. (laughs) You know, it's pretty interesting. You mentioned Jim Carrey and Tom in the same sentence because Tom was humbled obviously long ago and he was humbled through him getting his life back after having wanting to check out, never thinking he was going to recover from his concussive injuries from his bicycle accident. But Jim Carrey, of course, came to his new conclusions much later through, I don't know what event or episode occurred for his shift to occur, but interesting that they worked together, were both mega successful, but then uh, uh, Tom had his accident I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe, something like that? Yeah, maybe, or more. And then uh, Jim Carrey, I think only in recently, the last couple of years, maybe, that I'm aware of, came to his new consciousness, as it were. Right, that's right. And it's it's actually kind of cool. I don't think that every star should turn their back to where they got, you know, and shun it or even uh, make fun of it, but... You've probably seen some of the short videos of Jim Carrey at, a, at an award show or on a red carpet where he's just saying, we're not important. Right to the camera, I'm, I'm not important. This person isn't important. And, uh, you know, like he's totally making fun of the hyper interest in celebrity. He's taken a pretty uh, hard line stance on the whole illusion of the material world and how caught up we are in it. And he's now become kind of this champion for pointing out the absolute foolishness in it and the irrelevance to actually living a happy, awake, aware life. And people are very uncomfortable with him right now. And I love the uncomfortableness that he's creating. You know, a couple of shows ago, I did the Stephen Biller show and, uh, Stephen uh, interviewed him for his uh, for uh, Jim Carrey's art show, private art show he did in Palm Springs. Oh, yeah, I, I listened to that show while I was actually driving from, like, Bakersfield to Needle. Yeah, so there you go, Jim. Coincidentally, speaking of art, recently I, I got an email from a college radio station in Canada, in British Columbia, that actually has played Canadian Woman several times. And they're having a, a big fundraiser for their radio station. And I found out that CD Baby now actually makes download card stickers, oh. which is like genius. So it's, it's a sticker on one side and the download code is on the back. You can either, you know, not stick it on something or peel it off and stick it. And then you have the code whenever you want to download. And so I had the, the album art of Naked in Public, the album art of Lucky Doug and the Stink Bugs, and the, the logo, Lucky Doug Fergus, made into stickers with the album download number on the back. Super cool. And I had 50 of each printed up, so I just this morning mailed a package to CFBX, that's Charlie Frank, Bill X Marks the Spot, in Kamloops, British Columbia, and so your art is 150 copies of your art that will be given out at their fundraiser. Awesome, Blossom. 
I want to personally thank you, Doug, for, for being that guy who's had my back for so long in many ways that I cannot describe up to and including most recently the gift of this fabulous new uh, road podcaster mic and uh, cool swing arm studio arm rig that I get to use now and and have a much higher quality of show that I don't have to share a microphone with my guests anymore I actually get my own mic and my guests get their own mic and right now actually you're on your own mic my old mic and I am now speaking to you standing comfortably uh, with the anti-shock housing and this cool studio arm into the mic uh, that you you purchased for me uh, lucky Doug Fergus so I want to say uh, thank you for everything always I appreciate you and uh, I want you to go ahead and plug the shit out of whatever it is that you got going on Hey, baby, you're quite welcome. I feel it's very, very worthwhile thing that you're doing. And uh, if all the fans out there, all the followers and the lovers of the Citizen 44 show... Oh, by the way, okay, here's the tie-in. Okay, everybody out there listening, you know at the end of every show, there's that groovy song that plays... da 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 that's my song called Departure Family that I wrote that Mark played drums on. So you should want to download that for your own purpose just for that reason. And the great Jason Rufus Sewell of One-Eyed Doll is playing the guitar on that song. But all you have to do is, is go to iTunes or wherever you buy your records and tapes and search Naked in Public and then put Departure Family, and you can own that song. <laughs> or just go to Spotify and just play it, if you want to just play it and don't want to buy it. If you want to know about any other of my music, you go to NakedRealityMusic.com or go to LuckyDoug.com. By the way, you can also, if you like the music and the show citizen 44 the mark Aaronsberg citizen 44 podcast thing you can download all my archive shows on stitcher and uh cast box and so you will have his song and the shows and you can go download just the song and so all those things are are possible and uh and, yeah. or you could just Google Doug Fergus, F-E-R-G-U-S, and I would imagine tons of stuff will pop up, and you can just go have fun Googling around, checking him out. Yeah. yeah. All right, Doug. Love you, brother. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for being in my life, and I'm glad you're on my uh, 44th show. Merry Christmas to you, brother. And happy harmonica. Happy 44th show, bro. Way to go, man. Doing what you love. Realizing the dream. You're a beautiful human being, man. Thanks for everything you do. Keep it up. Stay strong. Big love. Happy 44th show. Love, Pippi. P.S. It was 1044 when I left that voicemail. This show is dedicated to my Aunt Nikki and my friend Barbara Jean Black Whitbeck.